And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, live tonight, but barely on the other side of midnight. That really crazy time. Remember I used to say magical? Well, it's gotten beyond magic. It's now into crazy, 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 crazy land. Remember, I've been saying for quite a while now that it's really kind of like a paraphrase of that uh, um, movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. There's so much stuff coming at us from every direction that is not normal. And by normal, I mean the stuff that we grew up with, the stuff that we assume is kind of mainstream, the, the stuff that we're you know used to counting on. Well, obviously, if you've ever you know, watch any news programs in the last several years, like almost a decade, nothing is normal. And that includes uh, the background operation for getting the show on the air. Uh, you would not believe what's going on here in the land of enchantment tonight. And uh, there's no reason to bore you with the details, but uh, we are kind of caught between a very uh, dense high to the north of us and a very low low to the south uh, west of us, the hurricane, Hurricane Hillary. And the winds here are picking up, and uh, in New Mexico, with its fragile uh, infrastructure, anything can happen. So let's assume everything is going to go well. We have an extraordinarily important program tonight. As you know, there are two unmanned missions preparing to try to land at the lunar south pole, one of them seems to be in good shape. The other one, well, we'll, we'll get to that in a couple of minutes. Let me start tonight with the hurricane. Um, if you are new to the show, you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. We have a section called Radio with Pictures. And the way you reach that is you simply click on tonight's banner, which says rather boldly, uh, let me get to it here. Um, Chandrayaan-3 is India's new moon landing mission, secretly being guided by the Enterprise mission's profound discovery of the ancient lunar domes. And that's the kind of backbone of our show tonight. And, of course, added to the mix in the last few days, the Russians, for the first time in 47 years, almost half a century, um, kind of reminds me of the night of Apollo 11. They have launched another unmanned mission for the first time in almost 50 years, and they're in lunar orbit, and as you will hear shortly, they have apparently encountered some kind of problem. So we'll get to that in a minute. What you want to do is you want to click on tonight's banner on the main page. That will take you to the guest page. Uh, right under it, you will see... Uh, uh, fast links to items, click on my name. That takes you to the section of what we call radio with pictures. Click uh, on my name. That will then take you to my items. We start off, obviously, with the hurricane. Now, for those of you who, with little memory, um, this hurricane, which is going to be degraded to probably a tropical storm by the time it reaches the United States, it's now off the coast of Mexico and spilling tremendous amounts of rain. The winds are on the order of uh, 110 miles an hour. It's a Category 2 
Uh, it will sink to a Category 1 and then down to a tropical storm by tomorrow. But it will make landfall in the United States in Southern California with a tremendous uh, umbrella of rain that is going to uh, create all kinds of problems and issues and even catastrophic situations for a lot of people who are not used to this. Remember, California does not get typhoons or hurricanes. This is the first time in something like 84 years since September of 1939 that a storm with tropical force winds is going to make landfall in Southern California. In fact, the last time that it did this in 39, the Weather Bureau didn't even have categories for, you know, hurricanes or storms or tropical storms like this because they didn't have aircraft, they didn't have satellites, they didn't have radar. I mean, they were really in the dark. So tonight we are bracing not just in California, but across the entire southwest for very strong winds. I'm at uh, 6,500 feet, and the higher you are, the more the winds will blow, particularly if you have an opposition between a high and a low. A low is a low-pressure area in the atmosphere. It obviously sucks in, pulls in surrounding atmosphere, trying to fill the low to bring the pressure up to an average, whereas the high, which is like a higher pressure zone in the atmosphere, it will bleed off air moving toward the low. And in between, depending upon the distance, the winds, particularly where I am, can get very strong. So if we suddenly disappear tonight, you'll know why. I am praying that it will last at least till the end of the show. Tomorrow, of course, is up for grabs because the uh, storms, the, the, the two systems are getting closer, even though separated by hundreds of miles. That was the same situation, by the way, that obtained about a week and a half ago uh, off Hawaii when there was a high pressure area to the northeast. There was a hurricane hundreds of miles away to the southwest. But the winds between the two, even at sea level on Maui, exceeded 80 miles an hour, which, of course, was uh, part of the severe problem that uh, Maui and Lahaina experienced to everyone's incredible tragedy, which, of course, takes us to item number two. Uh, the president and the first lady are going to be visiting Maui on Monday. They didn't bounce into an airplane right away because when the president travels, there's a huge Secret Service entourage and obviously, when the president arrives, there's all kinds of security considerations. And so it does not help the local situation for the president to kind of drop in for a photo op. Uh, it's now been almost two weeks. They're in the recovery of bodies in Lahaina. There's over a thousand people still missing. The, the dead, the count of the dead has risen now officially to 114, obviously. It's very slow because uh, confirmation of identity when, um, when something like this happens is very, very difficult. Um, our heart goes out to all the people of Hawaii and certainly of Maui and specifically, of course, of Lahaina. There are so many questions 
unanswered and maybe even now unanswerable. Uh, but the thing I wanted to point out, which will kind of precede what we're going to do tomorrow night, where because we're talking about Oppenheimer and this our second program on that extraordinary development, the uh, the you know creation and implementation and uh, um, uh, you know use of nuclear weapons in World War II, there's a huge backstory which of course involves, and you knew it would hyperdimensional physics. So tomorrow night, we're going to talk about Maui for part of the show, and we're going to talk about Oppenheimer and the background and what is coming in the in the form of the deployment and use of nuclear weapons in the 21st century. Of course, the hotspot now where everybody is watching very closely is the war going on in Ukraine and Putin's constant threat to use nuclear weapons. And we will have some very, I would say, unusual new data to apply to this entire situation tomorrow night, provided we can be on the air. That really is kind of up to Hillary and the fragile infrastructure here in in New Mexico. So um, that kind of is a prelude to a much fuller uh, discussion tomorrow night. I found a very important and informed analysis which is very factual, which is very data-driven. So we will post that on Radio of Pictures tomorrow night. It was too late tonight to get it up there. And the actual discussion will take place tomorrow night, so it will be well-timed. Item number three. As I said at the top of the show, um, the reason that we are doing the show tonight was initially because the the, uh, Chandrayaan-3 mission, the second attempt by the Indian space agency called ISRO to land an unmanned spacecraft on the moon is going to take within a few days. The actual planned landing is next Wednesday on the 23rd. Well, a few days ago, August 11th, Moscow time, August 10th, here in the United States, the Russians launched their first attempt to send an unmanned probe to the lunar surface in 47 years. Now, the Russian space agency is not, obviously because of almost 50 years elapsing, the same as it was, you know, 47 years ago when the last Russian unmanned mission called Luna 24, sorry, uh, set down safely on the moon and conducted rover operations and sample analysis and when I look back, I think of how primitive the technology was then. To give you an example, all the cameras of spacecraft back then were either uh, on Apollo, literally film cameras, photographic cameras. If you don't know what those are, Google is your friend. <laughs> and the electronic television images that were sent back to Earth, both by manned and unmanned spacecraft, literally consisted of tubes, not even chips, not even transistors. Photographic sensing elements were what were called viticon or image orthicon tubes, uh, and they were scanned by electron beams in a vacuum uh, in the in the camera in the spacecraft, and they are what the Russians depended on, what we depended on, except, of course, for the film cameras uh, in the manned uh, lunar Apollo missions. 
Well, that, of course, all has changed. Now all the cameras are incredibly small, incredibly efficient, incredibly lightweight, and totally solid state. There is not a tube amongst them. Given that, take a look at that picture from the Chandrayaan spacecraft that was snapped a few hours ago and sent back to Earth. Um, does it look really crystal clear and sharp to you? No. Why isn't it sharp? Why were the previous images taken in uh, lunar orbit, uh, which of course this was also, but this was taken by a different set of cameras. Apparently, uh, according to the uh, um, Indian Space Agency, this is one of two landing cameras that is going to be used after the uh, lander, the Chandrayaan-3 lander, uh, touches down safely on Wednesday, presuming, of course, everything goes okay. But in looking at the quality of this image, it just seems to me that there's there's something something weird and kind of wrong. And we'll get into that as the morning progresses. Now, if you look at item number four, right below that is the latest news from uh, um, the national news agencies. I think this is a digital trends story, which is an online news service devoted to um, technology, high technology, uh, web stuff, digital stuff, and all that. Apparently, this afternoon, at some point our time, the Luna 25 spacecraft currently orbiting the moon prior to descending to the South Pole, uh, after sending some images, there's one there visible as the linking image for the uh, number four item, it suffered some kind of technical glitch. That does not bode well. In fact, some commentators are saying that if it had been minor, uh, the Russians probably wouldn't even have mentioned it. But apparently it was something in the computer in the sequencing as the spacecraft was preparing, obviously running through a computer program uh, to land on Monday. And uh, they've had a glitch. They've announced that. There is no further word. When you read that uh, news item, you'll see that there's an awful lot of uh, uh, unknowns. Um, the spacecraft apparently is still safe in lunar orbit, but if there's a problem with disconnecting from the uh, uh, booster that brought them to the moon, if there's a problem with the landing software, if there's a problem with the navigation uh, in, in the computer, which will allow the uh, retro rocket burn that will lower them from their low lunar orbit down to the surface, all of that is an unknown at the moment. So all we can say tonight with certitude is that the Indian mission seems to be going according to plan, but the Russian mission has suffered some kind of technical glitch, and we know of no further information. By the way, there's been a set of stories out there that this is an example, the Russians launching their spacecraft uh, to the moon despite the war, despite the Western sanctions, despite the real freezing of uh, high technology chips and other uh, sophisticated technological, you know, gadgetry and, uh, uh, you know, material uh, because of the war. And I just want to remind people that this Luna 25 mission 
was planned for years ago. It had another name, Luna Globe, I believe, uh, before they changed the name to be consistent with the Lunar 24 history. And so regardless of what happens with this spacecraft, the chips and all the other appurtenances for a sophisticated robot landing under computer control on the moon uh, under the Russian uh, banner has nothing to do with the war, nothing to do with the sanctions. All of the equipment was purchased and assembled literally years ago. And so what the Russians did is obviously complete the final assembly and test with stores already in hand. So there is really no uh, connection between the current Luna 25 effort and the uh, sanctions against uh, Putin for the war. With that out of the way, let me now go into some depth um, on the part of why we're doing this show tonight. So uh, tell you what, before we do that, let me introduce my my cast because I think we're going to want to have what is an open and extraordinarily spirited discussion. Tonight we have Andrew Curry with us, who of course is a professional artist. He does uh, artwork for films. He does storyboards for commercials. He does movies. Uh, he's got a, a diploma in graphic design and illustration. And the way we got into the conversation years ago discussing Alan Bean's artwork, he has a master's in art therapy. So without further ado, Andrew, are you with us? Andrew Curry. Unmuting helps. Okay, I don't think we have Andrew with us. Uh, we've got Ruggiero Kahlo, who is with us from um, England. It's the wee hours of the pre-dawn darkness in Britain right now. Um, he has a very extensive background in medical technology, but he's also a very keen artist. He's an athlete. Um, he is a wide-ranging generalist, like uh, uh, a lot of us uh, here happen to be, and he is, uh, I believe, on the line. Ruggiero, are you with us? Good morning, Richard. Can you hear me? Good morning. Yes, Good I morning, hear everyone. you. I hear you five by five, as they used to say in the old radio biz. Awesome. I think I fixed my technical glitches from when I was on the show before. Okay. Um, do we have uh, Do we have Ron with us? Keith? We're going to kind of play things loosey-goosey tonight. Do we have Ron with us? Okay, he's uh, Keith just told me in the Skype chat that uh, we'll have Ron uh, shortly. Uh, and I don't think Robert Morningstar is with us. Um, do we have Holger Eisenberg with us? I'm here, yes. Holger, ah. Yeah. Okay, I'm clicking on Fortunately, your... Far far to the west from Stormy Hillary in a safe location. <laughs> well, you're up north, aren't you? You're in, in the Bay yeah, Area? North, northwest, yeah, northwest yeah, in yeah. The, on the Pacific Coast. No, no, no. By the time it gets close to you, it's going to be rain showers. Um, actually, because of the way weather moves, you know, west to east, uh, we're going to get, Arizona's going to get, Nevada's going to get. It's even going to stretch up in terms of heavy rains into Utah and Wyoming and Montana if you can believe the extraordinary uh, jet stream track, which will take this storm north. 
Um, I do not have in front of me a bio for you. So let's do something different. Why don't you tell our audience, which consists of a lot of new people, how did you wind up getting into imaging and uh, how did you wind up being one of the world's experts on the colors of the planet Mars and other imagery from various space agencies? Yeah, that story is still ongoing. I'm, I'm still working, improving the uh, color calibration of Mars images. Uh, you can see it on my Twitter account and on the website at Ario Info on Twitter where I'm posting current images from the Perseverance rover and Ingenuity helicopter and working on showing them in true color in in a colorization like you would see yourself in when standing on the surface. So you've been and very I'm, go ahead. Yeah, I'm I'm doing I'm doing the same methodology there uh, like you would do as a professional photographer or amateur photographer when developing uh, raw digital images. And I just applied or used actually standard software now on the NASA raw images we fortunately can receive from those missions uh, in public. And the results are surprising. The results are surprising in what way? They are showing crisp colors, blue sky, blue to white sky, earth-like colors on the ground, and at least not the blurry, low contrast uh, visuals you might have seen years ago. So before you got in, in interested and involved in space imaging, what had you done before? I'm, that is still only hobby, so not professional. Uh, I'm still working at a software company in Silicon Valley and in a completely independent field. Uh, but yeah, not, not completely independent, but in the way independent, the use cases are different. But, uh, I'm working as a software engineer, so I'm applying some of the professional work I'm doing in problem solving also on the, on the scientific mass data. And that helps to have a bit kind of different point of view from the more engineering perspective, not expecting any specific scientific results there, just looking what the data can provide. What was the first thing about NASA that kind of got you intrigued with the whole problem? of properly balanced color? The first, about uh, yeah, images, of course, uh, the mysterious pyramids or the face on Mars decades ago. And about color, that was, uh, that was uh, yeah, from the Viking lander mission. Which that was back before in 19... my time, actually, 1976. Yeah, exactly. Up yeah. to the 1980s, but that was before my time. But I rediscovered those images on the internet in the late 1990s, where they became available with direct access, and at that time, uh, the computing power at home became in the way accessible that you can process those images, because at that time they were quite large compared to the standards you used on the, on the web at that time. And I just tried it out, what is possible there, what you can do with the technology there. Hmm. Well, the whole field of citizen science, given the tools now at our disposal is really 
you know, astonishing. All it takes is the right creative person with the right technical background and the tools that are available in the commercial market are essentially equivalent to what NASA had, what, maybe what, 10 years ago, even like five years ago? That was, uh, yeah, back, back then in the late 90s, uh, the, the image processing NASA used in the, during the missions actually in the 1970s, it were computers which only existed maybe uh, in 10 instances in the United States, so only 10 machines were capable and then in the, in the 90s they became uh, available in every household almost and now we have uh, capabilities uh, hundredfold in the in the data sizes you can process at home. So we can process gigabytes of image sizes, which was mm. impossible even at NASA at Vixen. Okay, I believe that Ron Gerbrun, who is our resident generalist, has joined us. Ron, are you there? Uh, yes, I'm here. Super. Yes, I'm here. Are you plugging things in? <laughs> uh, I was. I just got. Uh, I did a. I did a lefty righty thing there, and, and uh, well, I turned off the headphones before I spoke into them instead of the other way around. Ah, so, okay. Yeah. Well, well, you sound crystal clear. Uh, since you're the only one of us that's kind of in harm's way tonight, what's going on around you in terms of the approaching hurricane? Oh, cats and dogs sheltering together and uh, <laughs> uh, play at birds falling out of the sky. Uh, oh, come the, on. Uh, well, absolutely, there's absolutely nothing happening. The crickets are happy. The uh, birds, which uh, there's a flock of parrots that came by. And if you've ever heard what parrots say, uh, the noise that they make when they're not uh, saying Polly wants a cracker, uh, it's you, it's pretty awful. <laughs> but that's about, that's there's nothing. Uh, the storm is due here uh, late tomorrow sometime. Okay. Now, I've heard, and... I've heard that, that that timeline is kind of accelerated because it's, uh, it's moving faster now. It's moving almost 18 miles an hour. It was down at 13. And each hour, you know, there's extra miles. So it's closing the distance. What I'm curious about is it has lots of rain bands some of which are stretching as far as Arizona and even southern New Mexico already, but you have no rain. Yeah. Uh, not here. Yeah, not a drop. But uh, So you're, the, what, northeast of San Diego? Yeah, yeah, about uh, 25, 30 miles north of San Diego, inland about, you know, 12, 15 miles. Well, you're not uh, far from Mount Palomar. No, well, it's further away than San Diego is, but it, yeah, of course I'm over that way. But um, the um, if people really need to look these things up, there's a place called Escondido, which is named after its original inhabitants, which were literally stagecoach robbers that hid out there back in the uh, days of stagecoaches. <laughs> well, and uh, it means hidden in Spanish. It's not hidden now. I, I live near there. It's anyway. Yes, everybody's making jokes about the oncoming biblical deluge because the, the news is making it sound a lot more dire for us than it is. In the mountains and the foothills, uh, they're going to get some serious rain. But I thought that the, the lady from the National Weather Service that was on the radio this afternoon was actually making 
quite good sense. She said those threads of rain that you see in the radar, uh, those rain bands, um, tendrils, whatever you want to call them, are moving at uh, different speeds. And uh, they, uh, so it's kind of crawling up the, uh, up the landscape. Okay. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, when it does start having effects tomorrow evening, uh, you'll hear about it. But what we're looking at is, and I hope people that have ever experienced rain are listening, uh, yeah, we might get uh, two inches of rain. And that's not going on for four or five hours. I mean, I have been. Okay, we are at the bottom of the hour. Ron, Ron, stay high and dry. We'll be back to you in a couple of minutes. You're on the other side of midnight, everyone. Uh, Some of our guests have been assembled, not everyone. So we'll find out who can join us as we move through the morning. Again, we're talking about the imminent landing, the unmanned landing of two competing nations to become the the first to successfully land a robotic spacecraft at the South Pole. Well, near the South Pole. South Pole on the moon is as you know, extensive as South Pole is here on Earth in terms of illusions. So not too far from, let me say that. But the difference is the South Poles and the North Pole of the moon is a radically different environment than where we have ever landed before, us or the Chinese or the Russians. So hold that thought. We'll come back and explain why. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
And welcome back, everyone, on this uh, Saturday night edition, August 19th of The Other Side of Midnight. I'm understanding that we have some technical issues that um, uh, some of you may not be hearing either promos or music at the break. So I'm not quite sure why we've had uh, very bizarre technical issues here all evening. I'm uh, sometimes, you know, one wishes for the old days when all you did was sit in the studio and look for the engineer to point at you and say, you're on. Okay, so let's let's go back to uh, Ron. Ron, um, you've been watching what the Russians and the Indians are up to. What is your response to the potential um, issues with the uh, Russian uh, mission? Uh, I'm hearing well, lots I of... I wish I knew... Go oh, ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I stepped on you. Uh, the uh, I'm not sure yet what's going on with the Russian thing. Is you pointed at you pointed out the important parts that they uh, they put it together from stuff that was sitting on the shelf and hopefully in a in a dry dark place. Uh, and well, normally the procedure is, and NASA has done this for years, as so NASA has, that if the spacecraft is in assembly and something is wrong and they have to hold the the, uh, the launch for another window, they put right. it in what's called bonded storage, which is air-conditioned, dehumidified, you know, like uh, inert gas, nitrogen, or sometimes helium or whatever. So there's no change in the in the status of the spacecraft while they're waiting to fix whatever subsystem needs to be replaced or modified or whatever. So they can, you know, re resume assembling the spacecraft. So it, it's not like it was sitting on a used car lot for, you know, five years or whatever. These things are right. treated like incredible, precious jewels, and they are, frankly, you know, much more pricey, you know, in terms of per pound than any diamonds or any, you know, gold couplings or whatever you can imagine. So no, the fact that it. Uh, uh, was sitting in, in bonded storage, you know, before anything is done, before a spacecraft is launched, obviously it's thoroughly checked from top to bottom. And and that does not require uh, as much input from outside sources as assembling a spacecraft from brand new hardware would would entail. So I'm frankly suspecting, as a colleague of mine said several days ago, we were having this very spirited discussion as to why nobody's been able to land safely on the moon, you know, since, you know, 50 years ago. Um, and that is that uh, uh, I'm, I'm voting for the glass that all the new players don't know there's glass in the way and they're going to smash into it on the way down. Like the Israeli mission, which I was able to watch very closely because we had a source literally connected to the mission that was feeding us data, you know, kind of over the transom as everything unfolded. Um, and then, of course, the Indians with uh, Chandrayaan-2 back in 2019, where they were successful right up until within seconds of landing, and then everything went to hell in a handbasket. And now we have the Russians in orbit, not even trying to land, and they're having problems with the computer program that they were checking out that will initiate the descent burn, 
that will monitor the actual landing. And uh, this individual, who will remain nameless, they had to choose between two options. You know, my domes of glass, which unbeknownst these missions are running into because it's not supposed to be there. And the other option was sabotage. This individual chose sabotage for all these disparate, totally unconnected, different national missions and even private enterprise commercial missions like the recent Japanese mission that, uh, although it was not sponsored by the Japanese government, it was a Japanese uh, corporation, and they crashed just before they were landing. So I, I, I really don't think, even amongst people that we talk to at great length, that this idea of a global, hazy, remnant dome of shards of glass with bigger clusters here and there, depending upon the geometry and the architecture of the original and how much mass is left after being whittled down by literally millions of years of, of micrometeorite bombardment. I don't really think that anybody really gets the idea that it's this environmental situation which is dooming everybody who tries to land on the moon. Now, the except, uh. the, hang on, hang on. The exception tonight is, of course, the Russians, because preparing to land in lunar orbit is not the same as actually landing, and their problems seem to have struck them in the final stage of their preparation for descent, which indicates to me either a hardware problem or a software problem. You were going to say. I was going to say that uh, this is one of the reasons that I always mutter that all <laughs> data can matter. Uh, I, do no, you wait, remember the, the, the what? The what? That all data can matter. I'm going to bring another item in. Well, here of course, all I'm data sure, matters. I'm not sure about the sabotage, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I'm not the, either. Uh, I'm just telling yeah, you. The, I'm being a reporter telling you what someone yeah. very well connected, a quote generalist expert viewing this entire situation and all the programs we have done on the domes over the last couple, three years, their conclusion is not the domes, it's sabotage, because frankly, I don't think they can grasp the idea of this extraordinary dome reality. Go ahead. Well, that's, that's probably true, and that's why they would opt for anything other than that as an option. In other words, it was probably out of consideration right at the beginning, even if they'd say otherwise. But uh, the, as far as that goes, the, the uh, conspiracy theory part, uh, the Indians, uh, you know, uh, had problems. And that video that I sent around, and I know this is unkind because it's not linked there or anything, but it's the one that I sent around a couple of weeks ago that I found from some Indian uh, devotee of space things. And I think uh, that, there's a little clip uh, of exactly how the last, their last attempt at a lunar lander failed. And the bottom line seemed to be that they had given it preset based on their best estimates and their best observations and every data they could get, every bit of data they get from everybody else. They had plotted it out down to the practically the nanosecond so that the 
orbiter and the uh, other parts of it didn't have to make any decisions uh, independently. It would just do that at the right time. And that was, seemed to be part of what screwed them up. Now, the Russians build very robust space gear, at least they always have. Uh, Got to give them that. Uh, look at how many astronauts they've run up and down but the um, safely. But uh, in the case of in the case of this, yeah, it could a part could have gone stale. That can happen. But uh, it's probable they didn't account for something because it's the same point. It's the the separation, the <clears throat> breakaway, as you might say, of the uh, lander from the orbital thing. They did the exact same thing as the Indians. You know, the, the craft gets there, and then there's a separation, and the part that's going to land on the surface is, uh, descended, is descends to a lower altitude from which it will do its um, drop to the ground. Mm -hmm. And the Russians, as far as I saw uh, from the information we got, they were doing the exact same thing. They get there. Then they separate the two items. The one that's going to land goes down to a lower orbit to get ready to do that. And uh, lo and behold, they run into a problem at the same point. Well, so not, no, 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 wait, wait, no, not exactly, because apparently the problem with the Russians occurred when they were preparing to separate the spacecraft. They, they said something about they're being very, very loose and ambiguous and general and not telling us anything, really not about separating and they're 60 miles high so they're in a safe orbit um the the indians back in 2019 they separated successfully their crash literally came within seconds of touching down when they were literally less than a mile above the surface so the problems are not the same and you know the one thing that, that i think you might have uh is that the uh the the checkout for Luna 25 after sitting in, as I said, bonded storage, um, may not have been as thorough uh, or covered everything as it should have. But again, the Russians were able to carry this out decades ago with with tube technology. You know, it, it, it's just astonishing how much better the, 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 the physics of spaceflight hardware has become. And the better it gets, the worse the track record of trying to use it to land on the moon, which is the simplest possible Newtonian thing. If you don't take into account there's some kind of obstruction between you and the ground, you know, the moon is, it, we know exactly where it is. We know how fast it rotates. We know it's airless. It's a vacuum. You know, the maps have been published for decades down to the, you know, almost meter so all this problem of landing, when, when you see the official explanations, they make it sound much harder than it really is. So I'm looking at the X factor, which is either they don't know what's in the way and they keep hitting chunks of glass, or they do know what's in the way. They try to get around them and they're not very successful, which is why the current Indian mission, which is carrying an instrument never before carried into lunar orbit, I think all other things being equal, uh, it's going to make for an, a successful Indian landing. 
At least hmm. we can hope. And as we go through the morning, we'll get into the details, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in more detail. I just want to add one tiny thing. I, the fact that they both were at the same orbital height uh, when they ran into problems, I, I don't see it terribly significant that it happened right away with the uh, or at a different point in the process of separation for the Indians than for the Russians. It's, I think it's the location. They were at that height. Now, no, 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 no. The Indians lost their Chandrayaan two literally less than a mile up. Yeah, they thought everything was fine, but remember, their stuff was all pre-recorded, as it were. It was not responding to the circumstances much, much less than you would expect from the. Well, everything is pre-recorded. There. There's a 1.5 second light speed delay between Earth and Moon, so you can't control it in real time from Earth. It's all onboard computers, sensor loops like radar or lasers. Um, it turns out the Japanese commercial mission that failed, their mm -hmm. terminal descent, the, the sensors that were going to indicate, you know, when they fired the rockets and when they had to hover and when they turn off the engines was all driven by a laser landing system. And what do we know absolutely about lasers and glass. If you beam lasers at glass, you're going to get incredible reflections and scattering and echoes, you know, bouncing around until the signal is too weak, which means you might think you're further from the moon than you are. And you might, if you're the computer, take the input, which is faulty because it's not accounting for the glass, and you will literally run out of fuel above the surface and that's what the Japanese appear to have done. Their computer got an input that said they were higher than they were <clears throat> and the engines kept firing and they ran out of fuel and they crashed the last few hundred feet. At least that's the that's the story that we're getting about uh, why they, they were not successful in touchdown. Of course, the official explanation, <clears throat> excuse me, does not mention glass at all. No, but it's plausible as as Stated, you know, they, all the all the T's get crossed. Uh, I'm just curious. Sixty miles is too high for a dome. I'm not saying there's a dome. No, 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 yeah, no, the, no, 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 no. Well, how did the glass get there? And it's always the no, same no. Place, they're right? in a vacuum. The the yeah. parking orbit is sixty miles. Is forty miles above the highest extent of the dome we've measured, which is around twenty. Yeah, that makes sense. And again, yeah, no, they cannot have run into anything at 60 mile altitude. And they didn't say they had a mechanical problem. They said no. something in the program was not working. That's a computer, you know, talk, speak. Holger, mm -hmm. please help me out here. I'm slowly starting to believe in uh, transparent uh, protective layers around the moon. <laughs> what? Wait, 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 wait. Ding, 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 ding. Where, yeah. Where's my band? Where's my band when I need it? Maybe virtual transparent layers, protective layers. Yes, well, that was, that was Neil Armstrong at the White House <laughs> in 1995 on the, I think it was the 25th anniversary of Apollo 11. And he spoke there at the podium in the White House in the... Uh, press room with the President Clinton standing over his left shoulder and he talked about truth's protective layers 
And of course, those of us that have been following this very closely, we interpreted that to mean, you know, political layers, cover-ups, secret data, things that we were not being told by NASA. And in in a very elegant Emily Dickinson fashion, uh, Armstrong was trying to tell us the truth, but tell it slant. I don't think, maybe he was, he was referring to the damn glass domes. Wouldn't that be something? Or at least something uh, transparent, which is uh, more than just Newtonian gravity. If oh, oh, the actual the, the actual mass of the domes is minuscule compared to the uh, the mass of the moon. You know, think of cellophane compared to a a Mack truck. So, yeah. Okay, if you see the Chandrayaan two and the Japanese Hakuto Air both sailed around two to five kilometer altitude. Well, as as, as in my model. If there are layers, multiple layers, and they're compartmented when they were brand new, you know, keep air in. So you lose air in one section, you don't lose air in the whole thing. And when you think of the amount of volume of a, of a, of a shell with a bottom and a top, let's assume it's 20 miles thick. It's 15 million square miles in terms of the area of the moon. Uh, volume would be then... 20 miles deep that gives you an incredible volume that means that even if you have a major meteor strike and you've got a hole in the dome or domes uh you know as big as the uh titanic itself 800,000 feet across the rate at which the air would leak out it would take centuries for there to be a perceptible decrease in the air pressure underneath such a dome given the scale see no one puts numbers to this stuff their eyes kind of glaze over at the magnitude of a technology that we can only dream about because obviously nothing that we can envision or i should say the mainstream can envision uh could possibly do what we are seeing in the data but again the russians appear to have some kind of a computer problem and that to me says that my friend who said it was all sabotage in this case they may actually be onto something because they were at a height and doing something so routine that they should have no problems in some internal computer uh, sequence of events for separation from the uh, booster rocket that put them into lunar orbit uh, about a week ago that tells me that sabotage is potentially a problem i also can see that ron could be absolutely right and that when you in russia compared to here when you put something in bonded storage uh it's not the same and so it could be simply a a, you know basically a failed chip or or a module or something that really interfered with the uh, uh program and if that's it there are workarounds for computer issues right holger I, uh, about the Russians, I, uh, I'm not sure if it was separation. Maybe it was just reorientation of the spacecraft. And because there, uh, there was a similar problem with, uh, not Artemis, but with, uh, uh, with a small CubeSat lunar mission, which is, uh, flying the um, lunar gateway orbit. 
currently, right. and that has a problem with the Star Trek. Uh, yeah, that, 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 that is called the Capstone Mission. And again, the they, yeah, they, yeah. they did not have problems in, in Earth orbit. They had problems en route to the moon. They solved them. They inserted successfully. But they're in a very high, uh, very elliptical orbit that will match the future uh, lunar space station that NASA proposes to put in polar orbit around the moon in several years, probably three or four years, I think, which will be their, the reason they call it gateway is because it will be the approach and departure point for missions to go down to the surface as part of uh, the Artemis, you know, human landing program, which will not begin to attempt a, a human landing until 2025 at the earliest, probably now slipping to 2026, because I think of uh, some funding issues or Maybe it's a technology issue. Sure. Say again. Uh, I was just snorting at the idea of uh, Artemis. I was going to mention it earlier. They had a lot of little glitch problems uh, before they did whatever it is that they actually achieved. Most well, recently. You, you mean on 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 the ground? Yeah, when they resurrected the project, you know. Said, well, no, no, no. They never resurrected. It was been quietly on track for over a decade. It just took them long because they didn't have a lot of money, you know, and space flight is basically dependent on money, you know, no bucks, no buck Rogers. So if you have a little money, it stretches it way out. If you have a lot of money, you can get a lot of things done in a short period of time. Uh, the reason Artemis has taken so long is because Congress has not funded NASA to the extent that previous administrations, including the um, Trump administration, had requested. But the but the problems on the ground had to do with fueling, had nothing to do with the spacecraft. In fact, the Artemis One mission, as far as I can tell, was a resounding, stunning, stunning success. The only problem is they're not showing us any of the really incredible high resolution imaging, and Holger has been on that. And since we're about uh, five minutes to the top of the hour, I'm going to hold his description of what he's found vis-a-vis -vis Artemis until we come back at the top of the hour. What I want to do is I want to highlight the fact that the Indians apparently discovered something uh, during their Chandrayaan-1 mission, which was back in 2009, which has set them up again in the conspiratorial someone does not want the Indians to successfully land model because they had an orbiter Chandrayaan 1. By the way, Chandrayaan in Sanskrit means moon craft. Like, um, it, it's a variation on Vimana, which is an Indian uh, flying vehicle that has been very redolent in ancient Indian mythology, which of course a bunch of us over here think is really kind of uh, filtered history of a previous high-tech civilization to which India still preserves interesting documents and reportage. So way back in 2009, the Indians sent their first mission to the moon consisting of an orbiter, which lasted uh, slightly less than they projected because of some temperature issues, but they got a lot of data. And then they had a little, uh, almost like a CubeSat. It was called a MIP. I forget what the um, acronym stands for. Uh, oh, Moon Impact Probe. That's what it stood for. And they basically ejected it from the orbiter 
and it literally followed a curving trajectory down to the surface of the moon, and it deliberately crashed. But on the way down, it took all kinds of interesting readings, magnetic fields, gas spectrometry, uh, some imaging, and the most bizarre thing about the Indian um, MIP mission, which was basically the, the whole thing lasted like uh, less than an hour from release in orbit <clears throat> to impact on the moon's surface. And they impacted somewhere near, I believe, the South Pole. I believe that was their destination. And on the way down, as they got closer to the moon, they began reading all kinds of molecules and constituents in a lunar atmosphere, which was on the order, get this, 100 times thicker, denser than the incredibly non-dense atmosphere all around the moon measured by Apollo. Now, when you say lunar atmosphere, most people get the absolutely wrong idea because they think of something you could breathe or might see. No, the lunar atmosphere is like a trillionth of the Earth's atmosphere, even on its best day. But in this case, what the Indians measured and broadcast home before their spacecraft impacted as planned was an atmosphere which was 100 times denser than Apollo, which right there was really bizarre because given that the moon is basically an atmosphere of zero and exposed to space, the solar wind sweeps away any gases that might think of clinging to the moon, even in wispy trillions uh, of an Earth atmosphere you know, percentage. And uh, that means that there's something else going on. And the something else going on, we're going to talk about when we return. Side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. 
theothersideofmidnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this uh, Saturday night. Uh, Sunday morning is approaching. It will arrive at some point. Yeah, Saturday night, August 19th, 2023. And we're talking about the impending landing of the Indian Chandrayaan-3, which means mooncraft in Sanskrit, spacecraft at the lunar south pole in just a few days. Next Wednesday, they're going to try to pull off what they tried back in 2019 and literally came within seconds of pulling off and then something catastrophic happened and the spacecraft crashed. And it's happened now to everybody who has tried up until the Chinese successfully were able to land unmanned spacecraft on the moon not only on the near side, but also on the far side in the so-called Aiken Basin, which is the lowest terrain on the moon. It's a huge impact basin. It's like a thousand miles or something like that across, you know, very, very depressed below the, quote, median sea level on the moon. There is no such thing as sea on the moon, of course, but you can, you can uh, calculate a kind of average datum, an average spherical moon planet you know object and then you scale things higher or lower from there so this was that for mars too yeah yeah well all 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 planets are are subject to this kind of geodesy and mapping so uh but they were successful but the difference is ladies and gentlemen unlike the russians and the indians and even u.s missions the Chinese chose a vertical landing as opposed to a long, drawn-out, horizontal trajectory that gets them closer and closer and closer until they go into a vertical descent mode a few miles up, which means if you're not moving laterally over you know, thousands of miles, but you're dropping down vertically, you know, basically at right angles to the domes, your odds of hitting something on the way down are much, 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 much less. So I felt all along the Chinese were clued in as to what's there, and everybody else is kind of in the dark. Now, if the Soviets successfully landed 47 years ago, all their unmanned spacecraft, how come the current generation of Russians uh, are having a problem? Well, if we ignore the possibility of a technological failure and we look at their planned trajectory, which is not vertical, but the long horizontal orbit that simply kind of touches tangentially the moon, you know, uh, 180 degrees uh, away from where you start your descent, it's called a Holman transfer orbit. 
then even if they succeed in solving their current problem, if they're going to try a long horizontal descent, they will probably inevitably, given they're trying to land at the, at the poles, near the poles, they will run into glass. Because over the lunar poles, uh, and in a future program, we're going to lay out exactly with pictures and arrows, uh, you know, with uh, arrows on the back. We're going to lay out why the poles are so dangerous, because the glass there is still very thick. And you can intuitively imagine why, but for those that cannot intuit what the moon might be like, we will go through it with great detail probably on next Saturday's show, which depending upon what the uh, Indians and the Russians do this week, we will devote to the follow-up to the landing effort on the moon with more images, more data, and so many different correlative measurements which show us that there is this multi-leveled, ancient, incredibly fragmented and shattered uh, glass, which mostly has the consistency of cigarette smoke, except for chunks, which are much bigger, because they used to be huge back when, and they've been whittled away, but the sheer mass means there's enough left hanging there to be of, of absolute catastrophe if a spacecraft at several thousand miles an hour runs into such a chunk or set of chunks. So, Ron, you were going to say something, I think. Uh, yeah, well, I was going to say two things. Since I introduced a little sanity up to the dome earlier, I'd like to reintroduce insanity because I think that it's a any process of putting something in a dome involves fields of energy, column force fields, if you want, uh, as well as the hard stuff. And I think that further out than the um, hard shell uh, parts of it, uh, there might be energy patterns and things persisting that could interfere with something on an electronic level. Yeah, but, but wait, wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. Hang on. Then how come there are any successful landings at all? How come we landed all the Apollo missions except 13, which didn't make it, uh, you know, to the moon's surface because of other reasons? How come we were successful? How come all the surveyors except one, surveyor uh, mm -hmm. uh, four, were successful? The rangers were successful after they fixed the electronic problems that shorted out their cameras as they were leaving Earth. Um, the the um, Indians have been in orbit at these altitudes for, you know, years now. The, the Chandrayaan-2 orbiter is still orbiting the moon at that 60-mile altitude and has suffered no problems. Um, well, sure. I don't think it's a no. I, I I don't think they're defense systems that are that were meant to kill. No, 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 no. You're you're thinking of some kind of like a like a, like a proximity field effect that there is there's side lobes or there's you know interference or proximity interference or whatever. And I'm saying if that was yeah. so, then the lunar reconnaissance orbiter would be dead. The Indian Chandrayaan two. In other words, no. No. Okay. I. I could be a little more limited than that. Uh, the only other thing I want to stick in was as the, um, in my position as the proctor of pronunciation, uh, and I did look it up uh, several different sources uh, last week. Uh, it's Chandrayaan. It's pronounced that way with the emphasis on the last uh, syllable. Potato, potato. <clears throat> Okay. Well, it's, it's you know it's it's. Do you, do you do you speak Sanskrit? I don't. 
So <clears throat> no, no, but I, I know I know that Vikram means valor, and that uh, Arya, the little girl that began and ended Game of Thrones, uh, her name in Sanskrit uh, means noble. Uh, you know, you pick up things here and there. Yeah, but that's not but, pronunciation. Uh, no, it's not. Yeah. But looking it up on Google and a couple of other places so that you see a little uh, electronic face going. Well, I'm one of the things God. I was going to ask Andrew's friend Arun, who actually is Indian and who's now yeah. living in Canada and was hopefully, we thought we could get him on the show tonight, but apparently there's a problem. Um, uh, I was going to ask him, how is it pronounced in India, given that India is, you know, is overwhelmingly speaking English these days. And even for, you know, native Indians, Sanskrit is not exactly a, a tongue that rolls effortlessly off the, uh, off the uh, tongue. Other way word. Yeah. Anyway, detail, detail. Um, okay. Let no, me I just like, go ahead. All right. Um, Keith, let me, let me do some housekeeping on the air. Uh, have we called uh, Robert and have we called Andrew to see what the issues are? I believe Kinthea has joined us. If Kinthea can do that, that would be very useful. Um, okay, so you called them several times. Okay, well, they're, it's weird, weird uh, energy tonight. Um, okay, so let me go to uh, – oh, I know. I was going to complete the story about uh, the MIP, the – um, moon impacting mission on Chandrayaan 1 because not only was the density radically higher because what you have to understand is that when the Apollo spacecraft landed on the moon with their big descent engines burning um, you know fuel they created a temporary synthetic atmosphere around the entire moon because of diffusion at molecular speeds that lasted for several weeks before the solar wind dissipated it uh, back to normal. Now, how do we know that? Because the Apollo missions left lunar scientific instruments called the ALSEP packages. Uh, I forget what the acronym stood for, Apollo Lunar Science Experiments Package. I think that was it. Anyway, and they reported on a whole range of parameters up to and including the density and the composition of the incredibly, you know, wispy trillionth below atmosphere of the moon under, quote, normal circumstances. And they carried out these measurements for years. So we have a good database, you know, something like 40 some years ago uh, to measure. So when the Indians got there and their little MIP descending impacting spacecraft was measuring feverishly the current lunar atmosphere, not only was the density astonishing by any normal standard, in fact, it was so astonishing that the Indians did not publish their data for months. I think it may have been like six months or maybe even a year until an American mission, a NASA mission, uh, mapped with a spectrometer uh, from orbit the fact that at the poles, near the poles, there appeared to be frozen reservoirs, deposits in permanently shadowed craters at both poles of water ice, a lot of it, ultimately billions and billions of tons to kind of paraphrase Carl. It was only then when NASA had gone first that the Indians uh, 
announce to the world that their mission had in fact detected water, not on the ground, but even in the wispy atmosphere as the MIP was descending before it impacted, which of course was incredibly controversial because now we have two really bizarre data points from non, you know, big three space programs, not US, not Russian, not China. And the data, the actual composition data, said that this much denser, remember, two orders of magnitude is 100 times denser. And given that the solar wind is constantly sweeping any atmosphere on the moon that might be puffed out by, you know, emissions, uh, nascent volcanoes, uh, you know, kind of a last gasp uh, from magma close beneath the surface, something like that. It would sweep it away and you would never know it had been there. Whatever the Indians were measuring not only was different, incredibly denser than had been measured during Apollo decades before, but it was still there. It had to be constantly replenished or else the solar wind, which is streaming past the uh, lunar airless surface at, you know, hundreds of miles per second, would sweep it away like a like a cosmic broom, if you want to use a dumb analogy. So they sat on this data until NASA had announced that they had found the ice by remote sensing by spectrometers. And then the Indians announced that they, in fact, had found molecules of water, molecules of, of uh, water that's been dissociated called OH, uh, and a bunch of other very interesting molecules, including carbon dioxide and nitrogen. And what does that all sound to my assembled panel? Where do we find a very similar atmospheric composition? Anybody? Come on. Nobody. Run down nitrogen on Earth, but carbon Earth. dioxide on Mars and other planets, Venus. Yeah. Yes, and primarily Earth. Those compounds are what you desperately need to have living organisms here on Earth. Water, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and I forget what the other elements were, but they were really incredibly provocative. In fact, it was that Indian data which said to me that all the rumors for all these years that somebody has a lunar base with people, human beings, or aliens on the moon permanently, well, the Indian MIP data confirmed brilliantly that absolutely out-of-the-box model because that's where a constantly replenished atmosphere, even if it's a, just a trace, given the leakage rates and all that from spacesuit seals and you know airlocks and that kind of thing, every time you cycle an airlock, you lose atmosphere to the unless you recycle it and stuff it back into uh, you know tanks which at our level of technology is not really you know a very good you know developed technology yet it means that there could be given the measurements somebody else on the moon who breathes the same 
stuff and consume the same stuff like water that we do. And that, of course, would be a shattering confirmation to every mainstream model about space programs, secret space programs, breakaway Nazi civilizations who left the Earth back at the end of World War II. That whole set of bizarre off-the-table models with the Indian data in 2009 directly to the fore. Jed, what about biological methane? Say again? About biological methane because on Mars. Yeah, I I believe methane was one. I believe methane was also one of the gases. In fact, um, if you click on link number five, um, I put up last week a link actually to Geoscience Letters, which has a very detailed list of all of the atmospheric components that the Indians measured very briefly on that half-hour trip down that um, should not be there. And they are so confirmatory of the idea that there's someone or is now someone on the moon besides us back during Apollo. And that, of course, is not, it's, it's not a trivial thing. Yes, Ruggiero. I'll, I'll read back through that, that document. I'll just pull it up now. It's quite long. Yes, it is. Um, because on the... And and, and, and and the really good stuff, because it's a scientific paper, is kind of buried in the fine print, like two-thirds of the way through the paper. So the Indians did not broadcast, you know, in the Indian Times, their stunning discovery or what it means. Because they do make some kind of references to potential current lunar volcanism, which, of course, is nuts. You know, the moon is not volcanically active at all. If it were... With all our orbital reconnaissance missions, particularly with infrared spectrometers, if there was any hot spots on the moon that were like volcanic, we would have spotted them in the last several decades. And nothing like that has ever, ever by any nation been seen. So I'm opting for the lunar base model. Somebody else at the lunar south pole, which of course is where all the good stuff has been sequestered by the environment basically being frozen out in those dark, endlessly sunless craters. And that's why everybody now is going to the lunar South Pole, because the in crowd knows that that's where the action is. There's somebody else on the moon. They just haven't gotten around to telling us, because, of course, if there was, and it's either a secret human space program or aliens or ETs or breakaways, it changes everything, the entire ball game, not only for spaceflight, but for geopolitics, for the relationship between us and China and Russia and the rest. It all changes in an instant, in a heartbeat. And that's why everybody is being very, very, very secretive about what's on the moon at the South Pole. And so when this individual said to me, well, maybe they're being sabotaged. You can't really rule that out because if you're trying to protect the secret that we're not alone and we're, it's not time to disclose that yet, even though there are house hearings on alien bodies and spacecraft and all that now, it means that on someone else's timetable, this information is not to be you know, uh, confirmed until someone else says it's time. And I'm hoping you know, because there's nothing else we can do, that it's time now within the next year or so, 
And that's why, among other things, the Indians are going to be successful with Chandrayaan-3 or Chandrayaan-3. So we live, we live in fascinating times, which is particularly with... Uh, Say again? Yeah, we live in fascinating times, particularly with... Yes, everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah, with all the stuff. Uh, so let me then go to item number seven, and let me check the time here and see how we're doing on time. Okay, it's 21 after the hour. If you go to my item number um, six, this is a poster, uh, a kind of a fact sheet uh, from India, from India today, showing the outlines of the spacecraft, uh, the, the carrying capacity, what each is supposed to do, the masses, et cetera, et cetera. And what struck me instantly was the image of the moon in the bottom right-hand corner, which is enlarged in item number seven. What is wrong, literally, what is wrong with this picture? Anybody? I'm still scrolling uh, to the page. Okay. It shows this nice bluish uh, hint of an atmosphere. Except we like know there's no atmosphere. So if it's yeah, not an atmosphere, you, if it's not an you atmosphere, don't need a, if it's you don't not, need Newtonian gravity for atmosphere. If, you can also pr keep an atmosphere with electrostatic forces, and then it uh, might glow. Yeah, like except a, we have measured with all kinds of spacecraft, there is no atmosphere around the moon, except what the Indian measured, which wouldn't be called an atmosphere in any decent conversation because it's down in the trillions of our atmosphere. It's more than a vacuum, but less than what we're breathing by a factor of, I forget how many zeros, it's, it's multiple trillions, you know, of our air. So no, the Indians in their verily, verily, I'll, I'll get this right, in their very Emily Dickinson fashion, I think are showing us in their artwork, they know there's a dome there. Notice the difference in color between the night side of the moon which is on the left in this artwork this is an actual picture of the moon which artists have done something to and then how it grades from the bluish tint grading to a sharp edge at the lunar horizon around to where it's in sunlight it's bright white and that's significant physically because if this dome exists and if it is there it is composed of very tiny remaining particles of glass. I've compared it to the density of cigarette smoke. Glass of that size, particles, will scatter preferentially blue light, just like the Earth's atmosphere composed of molecules selectively scatters blue light because the molecules are roughly the same size as blue wavelengths of light. Well, the remains of the dome, at least on the, on the near side, which we're seeing, are of the order of molecules in size. I said cigarette smoke, little you know, snippets of cigarette smoke are hundreds of times bigger maybe than the remaining most of these particles because of constant micrometeorite bombardment over untold millions of years. And the Indians in their artwork are showing us. Now, item number eight. On the right-hand side, this is an actual photograph taken by an unmanned South Korean mission, which is currently orbiting the moon tonight. Uh, the mission is called uh, uh, an Enjoy Moon. Um, 
and it's called Denuri in South Korean, but that translates to Enjoy Moon, which is, I think, more tongue-in-cheek humor from the South Koreans. And what you see in the comparison between the Indian artwork on the left and the actual Korean image of the moon on the right, there is a brilliant glowing ring grading to a sharp edge at the lunar horizon all around the moon in this full moon image taken by the Denuri spacecraft a couple of years ago as it was headed from Earth orbit on a very long looping trajectory uh, to the moon that took several months. What's the difference? The difference is the real photograph was taken through a polarizing camera, meaning a camera which has filters which can look at various geometries of polarized light, that is light vibrating in one um, line, like one dimension, up and down, left and right, um, catty corner, but it literally is, a, is, is light doing something most people don't even realize light can do, which is to present itself in various what are called polarizations. Simpler word would be geometric orientation. And a non-polarized light source, the light comes at you at all different angles, so it doesn't look any different through a polarizing filter. But polarized light has a specific vibrational angle to your camera or your lens or your detector. And if you set the filter so it matches that angle of vibration, it will enhance the polarized light and it will suppress all other non-polarized light, thereby bringing up the brightness of the object or entity or material which is doing the polarization. And on Earth, what is one of the most amazing ubiquitous substances that we know that strongly polarizes light? Wait for it. It's glass. Glass polarizes light. So as I said many, many months ago, the South Koreans somehow getting word that there is a polarizing something around the moon, specifically equipped their spacecraft to go into lunar orbit with a camera which can literally see the glass even if it's now of incredibly low density compared to the poles or the backside, the far side. And the Indians, in their artwork, put published specifically around Chandrayaan-3, did the same thing to their artwork. They copied the South Korean image, or they did it themselves independently because their data says, quite remarkably, there is something between airless outer space and the surface of the moon, which they need to map, thereby they have also put on Chandrayaan-3 polarizing camera, just like the South Koreans, and they've now spent several weeks in orbit mapping, mapping, mapping with that camera. It's called, by the way, SHAPE, which is ironic. It's an acronym. Uh, I forget what it stands for. But they're not admitting they're looking for glass around the moon. 
they're claiming in their brochures that what they're doing to do is to map the polarization of the earth, which polarizes light because of water, the oceans, and water vapor in the clouds. And they're then going to use these measurements to compare to the atmospheres detected by telescopes like Webb of atmospheres of other planets orbiting other distant stars. Not a word about the incredible utility of using a polarizing camera to map the glass over several weeks prior to your second attempted unmanned landing. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. everyone on this Saturday night, August 19th, 2023. We're talking about the impending landing of the unmanned Chandrian-3 mission and the unmanned Soviet-slash-Russian Luna-25 mission, both of which are poised in low lunar orbit, about 60 statute miles above the moon, going around every two hours, preparing for their descent phase For the Russians, it was supposed to be Monday. I have a feeling it's not going to be Monday. 
And for the Indians, it's supposed to be Wednesday. And so far, we believe that's on track. We'll find out. And so this could be the eve of some very astonishing things. So, panel, we're back. Uh, no, that music has me deaf. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's kind of much in a headset. but. Uh, ah. uh, Do you know where it's no, from? Just, no, seriously, I have a thought. Yeah, good, uh, good. Okay. Yes. Uh, atmosphere. Uh, the... I remember math from long ago where someone worked out the logistics of it, uh, that it's possible to take something that's got some heft to it, something the size of the moon, say, and give it an atmosphere. And the... uh, Yeah, hold it, hold it, hold it. Yeah, you know what the half-life of an atmosphere that you would give to the moon would be? About 10,000 years. Mm, 2,000. 2000 give or take you know I'll split the difference okay the point yeah, is well, if- the point is that if you have a very sophisticated high-tech colony on the moon and you say okay let's give ourselves an atmosphere not quite sure why anybody would want to do that and they did it and then the the colony devolved you know it basically became primitive and they lost all their technology they they would be able to breathe for a few thousand years before they literally were gasping for breath and died. So if you want a permanent habitable environment around an airless world, you literally have to create a physical dome, which may be self-reparable or may not be, but in any case, it would hold the atmosphere for much, much longer because it would depend on the number of strikes and the number of holes in the dome. And given that the scale is so enormously high and the size of the impactor is so relatively tiny, it would last much longer, probably 10 times longer than a uh, pure gaseous atmosphere that would leak away into space or be swept away by the solar wind, et cetera, et cetera. So that's been one of my ideas for why someone with extraordinary godlike hyperdimensional technology built this damn dome covering the entire moon way back when in the first place. Well, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive myself. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, everything you say is, you know, is valid, but in terms of renewing it, if you have the technology that could uh, certainly go halfway toward building a dome, uh, then you could bring in comets, icebergs from space, whatever you like to, uh, replenish it as necessary. Yeah, but you miss you miss uh, you miss an important point of my soliloquy. The what? colony or the lunar civilization implanted and then flowering and growing on an independent world orbiting Earth, if they ever devolved to where, you know, there was no more high technology, you know, think of all the stories about what happens on Earth after a nuclear war. You know, there's Exactly. A, well, but you don't have the technology to replenish the atmosphere. You're stuck with whatever you got when you devolved. And if you don't recapture that technolo- technological base in time, you're going to run out of air. 
well, yes. Unless you have a physical dome which keeps it inside. Why do you think the uh, mainstream has been pushing the idea of looking for lava tubes and underground? This is on the moon. Yeah. And under underground things. Yeah, of course you would have to bunker up somehow or down somehow, but. If the people are so devolved that they can't even go underground, you know, for the time being, uh, and then work their way out again, uh, just because they lose the uh, technology, which might not have been theirs anyway. They might have been... There's a million different scenarios. I'm just saying that if you're depending upon a non-technical civilization to stay alive on a world which was never meant to have an atmosphere, there's only two ways to do it. One is... Keep replenishing it, meaning robots, AI, which is immortal, which has an immortal power source, et cetera, et cetera. And then you hope that the programming doesn't get scrambled by cosmic rays. Or you physically put your guys in domes um, with a technology which is almost godlike if they're like, like like, like a nursery. And then you, you know, that ensures that they will have you know, millions of years of atmosphere, in which case evolution and devolution of the culture can happen almost without attention to the environment because the environment is so huge compared to their uses that it's almost like trying to, you know, take down infinity. Well, long form, if you have a civilization that's advanced enough to pretty much make a planet from scratch if they need to, or take something like the moon and uh, move it to put it in orbit around the earth, which seems to have happened at the very least. That's part of our Uh, model. Yes. Yes. And then uh, you can't assume that that civilization is going to persist forever. Exactly. Then whatever they have is going to start falling apart. Well, wait, wait, on earth without a dome, how come incredibly primitive animals and civilizations and humans have persisted for literally millions of years. Well, we're a nice nature park. We've got lots and lots of good exactly. environment there for it's, people to come in and It's poach. an ecosystem. Well, the only thing that makes it possible on Earth is the gravity field is strong enough to hold the atmosphere over an indefinite period of time, millions of years. Billions, actually. Whereas the moon, and there was a guy back in the 1920s, a British astronomer named Sir James Jeans, who figured all this out. And Arthur, my friend Arthur Clark, neatly published it in one of his books. He basically gave the escape rate of atmospheres from every planet that we then knew about, ranging from Jupiter to Mars to Mercury and the moon. And the moon was so stunningly short, thousands of years, that, and of course, back in those days, nobody imagined that we might find what we found on the moon now, which is artifacts. The only way that I can envision having an indefinite cycling ecosystem where plants and trees and forests and fields and rivers and all that are on the moon, like on Earth, they have to be under some kind of physical obstruction to the atmosphere leaving the one-sixth lunar gravity into space. And because they're in an artificial ecosystem 
and it's contained, constrained mechanically by the glass dome. Why glass? Because you need sunlight. The glass probably has incredible filters so that it filters out all the bad stuff, the UV, x-rays, whatever, and only allows the spectrum that we thrive under, like the Earth's atmosphere has ozone. Well, you could put the ozone technically in doping of metallic stuff in the glass when you make it so that it never wears out. And if there's robots and AI recycling and they're radiation shielded, they might even be able to keep the dome pretty intact even long after the unconscious biological entities living under it have lost their technology. In other words, we can speculate endlessly about why. What we can't speculate about tonight is, is it there? Because not only have I noticed it and written umpteen million words about it and uttered umpteen million words on this show and published umpteen photographs from all kinds of different missions from man to unmanned, but other nations like the South Koreans, they've now photographed the damn thing. The Indians are using in their artwork incredible Emily Dickinson illusions to what should not be there, which is a dome. Camera on to see where it is and where it isn't and to go down between where it is and isn't so they can land safely. And anything else is total speculation until we get ground truth, which could begin next Monday or Wednesday. Imagine, this mystery could begin to be coming to an end as soon as a few hours from now. Because you know what both missions are going to see if they make it down? Uh, Elon Musk waving at them? <laughs> good, 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 uh, good prediction. Mm. Not quite, not yet, <laughs> not yet. No, the dome, because the density over the poles as measured by the photographs I've been analyzing, and anybody else can too, is hundreds of times denser than the wisp that's left covering most of the near side. That's why Apollo worked. By the way, do you know what one of the mission requirements, absolute requirements for Apollo to land on the moon was? Windex. No, radar. Okay, radar. Okay. In the mission flight plans, in the profiles, in the simulations, in all of the literature, if the astronauts in lunar orbit did not have a working radar in the lunar module when they crossed 50,000 feet, which is 10 miles up, they could not land. And on Apollo 14, there was a very weird situation where they tried and tried and tried, and Ed Mitchell, who was the lunar module pilot, while uh, Shepard was flying the, the craft on the way down, they could not get the damn radar to come on. They tried and tried and tried, and uh, eventually it was a bunch of guys in the back room at MIT who radioed to Houston or called Houston, and then Houston radioed to, the, to Mitchell what to do with circuit breakers, and they got the radar working. And years later, every time Shepard was asked very Riley, would you have gone ahead and landed on the moon without the radar? He would not answer. All he would do was smile. Yes. Because he was, okay. of course, he was going to land. They were astronauts. Yeah, I, I, 
that's and test pilots before that. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, why you're, you're, why do they have that requirement? Because NASA, at some level, knew even then about the damn domes and what they would have done with the radar, which was pointing forward with with the craft basically flying rocket engine first with the cabin, you know, in the back before they tilted down what they call high gate and then low gate. That radar would have picked up chunks big enough to do damage and with a few milliseconds of thruster, you know, uh, you know, yeah. use, they would have changed their trajectory just enough to miss the glass that would kill them on the way down. That's why they had the radar. Uh, makes sense. You get you cover every option. Well, I try. <laughs> no, I don't mean just you. I mean anyone. You know, you're not covering every option because you 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 tie everything to these overarching dome structures that pretty much are every. It's a snow globe. You know, it's a, may, I don't know how much you would section them. But smaller well, domes think, think are of, also think of ships. Look, think, think of ships. You don't build ships with one huge volume. You make them compartmentalized. Why? Right. So if there's a hole in one compartment, Titanic comes to mind, um, you don't sink the damn ship. The compartments on Titanic were not built adequately for what happened, but at least they tried. They, they envisioned that they needed to do something different which was create a compartmented vessel. So all vessels, including uh, future spacecraft, will have compartments and watertight or airtight doors and airlocks and all that. If you're building a dome around the whole moon, of course you're going to cut it into compartments so that any meteor impact would only empty that compartment. And even then, it would be such a slow leak that the robots could fix it in time or if they all died out, it would not damage the rest of the structure or what was underneath it being protected in an atmosphere where biology could thrive and live, even if the technology all went to hell. A static, physical barrier between living and breathing and dying. Good idea. Yeah. So, uh, Regero. Holger, you've been very quiet. Yeah, where's Holger though? I'm I'm I'm, uh, I'm not seeing glass domes, but I'm seeing some invisible force field, uh, like maybe similar to some science fiction movies where uh, the force field was visualized like a glass dome That's or a glass house. Man. See, Holger's <laughs> on board with yeah, me. Yeah, see, and I, I don't buy that yeah. for I don't buy that for a nanosecond. You know why? <laughs> Have no idea. But at least because you can't see it. What what you need, remember, force fields by definition are invisible. You know, they're they're not material. They don't scatter light. They don't interact with electromagnetic radiation. They just sit there and block molecules. So if there was an if there was an active technology, say again. On a, on a physical level, uh, force fields are electrostatic fields with uh, layers. So they are not gradual, just a simple electrostatic field, but they are suddenly changing their polarity at a certain distance. Okay, on some of the best imagery, now that you've taken this seriously, and that's a real breakthrough tonight that you're taking this seriously, I will start sending you imagery 
showing close-up details, physical geometric details, which are not force fields because they're architectural splendors in glass and they behave numerically exactly like glass should behave, scattering short wavelengths depending upon the size of the surviving particles and allowing other radiation through. And the other problem with the so-called electrostatic model, the sun generates magnetic fields and electrostatic interactions and that would interfere grossly with any electrostatics maintaining a lunar atmosphere. And the biggest problem is, how do you get it to remain for millions and millions of years? What is your power source and how do you maintain a functioning technology that could do all this and be invisible? Uh, if Holger won't say it, I'll say it. If you have, if you ask those questions, it means you don't know how to do it yourself. That doesn't mean that it can't be done somehow. We just don't know how. It's not implausible or impossible if you can conceive of the idea of the force fields in the first place. As far, and I mean, as far as seeing them, you can see someone's uh, etheric aura, which is not a particularly tangible, measurable thing, uh, with a certain color sunglasses. Okay, guys, we have had we've had physical spacecraft, both manned and unmanned, going to and from the moon and going around it, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of times over the last 50 or so years. None of them have detected anything like you're proposing. And the idea that a huge physical electronic gadget orbiting just within hailing distance of this set of fields would experience no interactions, no interference, no recognizable, you know, effects at all with all the different instruments and all the different space buses, you know, uh, spacecraft themselves. Uh, to me, it just doesn't make any sense. Whereas a physical structure, if you're above it, you don't even know it's there unless you're looking. If you go down through it and you're really lucky, you won't hit something big enough to kill you. But if you're, you're, you have the wrong idea of how to get down, meaning the long horizontal trajectory, like Indians, like the Israelis, like the Japanese, like the, um, uh, you know, the old Soviet missions, the odds are that you're going to hit something on the way down and it's not going to be gradual because fields are gradual. They're, you know, inverse square, inverse cube, whatever. They as rock. far as we know, they are. Well, you'd have to have a different geometry in 3D space that would shape a field differently to be like a solid one microsecond. It's not there in the next bang. You slam into it. Again, what's yeah, the power source? How is it kept going for millions of years? Whereas a physical object, it's simple to make a physical object that will last billions of years. We have four or five or half a dozen of them in space tonight right now starting with Pioneer 10. How is the sun kept operating for millions of years? Because it's huge, it's big, and it relies on hyperdimensional physics and fusion to glow, and it doesn't lose very much mass compared to its mass. It's sheer scale. You know, the 800-pound gorilla problem to a zillion. Hmm. I still think it's slide rule prejudice, but you're saying this is all like ice cubes. Uh, no matter how big it is, eventually it melts away. 
Well, under and see, there's another look. I have so much data. That's why I've got to do the new book, the book on the moon and the dome around the moon, because I've been I've been keeping track of all the data. Obviously, nobody else has had time, but we have data ranging from imagery, infrared data, radar data. Do you know about the weird radar results of the first Diana Moon Bounce Project of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers back in 1949? Do you? Uh, When they bounced the signal off the moon. Right. And it was at television... UHF wavelengths, which eventually, you know, was used in cities and all that. It's a relatively long wavelength compared to, you know, radio telemetry signals these days. But they used it because it was the common frequency of World War II radars. They basically took a World War II radar set, lots of tubes, okay? They hooked it up to a big, giant antenna. I put these pictures on the other side of midnight, you know, 100 times. And they bounced off a full moon radio signals and they recorded the initial transmission and then they recorded the echo. And if you look at the actual physical trace, the echo is not the same sharp ping you would get off a solid moon. It's a long decaying series of echoes like the radio waves bounced around in the cavity between the dome and the lunar surface until the signal strength was lost and a portion was reflected back to Earth and picked up by the receivers of the U.S. Army in um, at Fort Dix in New Jersey in 1949. And I've got the traces. And now we have modern data from our, um, uh, you know, uh, Amuamua, transmission experiments, one of which we aimed at the moon, and Jimmy Blanchett has got that radar data in his file, in his archives, and I'm merely waiting for him to send it to me, and we'll have two separate sets of traces, the ancient one in 49, the modern one last year, and they will show, I'm predicting, guaranteeing, the same damn thing, because the dome interacts with radio waves in a way which is reflective, pun intended, of a solid structure, not of a series of force fields. Well, again, we don't know what the force fields are, and that's how radar jammers work. Do not invoke magic on me, please. It's not magic. We have to stick to what we know, what we can see, what we can measure. Yeah, but we don't have to limit ourselves to what we Yes, we do. It, it is because it's not immaterial. It keeps destroying spacecraft. Yes. Well, until you sort through the evidence until you find out which part you haven't been paying attention to. Well, and that's this, what this, ha- this, that's this, what's this, happening here. I don't mean you personally. I just mean that you can't exclude possibilities. You can okay. Put before them before we say, okay, this is inert. We are we are at the top of the hour. Uh, item number nine in my radio of pictures is the Chandrayan shape description of the camera, the polarizing camera, the Indians have sent into lunar orbit so they can see the dome. In other words, whatever this thing is made of, it interacts with light. If it didn't interact with light, which gives us a whole bunch of equations, 
then you wouldn't see it. It'd be totally invisible. Why would a force field interact with light unless it's specifically interacting with with photons, which are massless in our current models? Whereas glass does all the things that I've been talking about, including polarizing light. We know you can create glass domes. We don't know any technology which can create a force field. So it obviously, you know, belies Occam's razor. I will go with the least extraordinary hypothesis until we have measurements of the force field. And that will be very interesting because I don't think it exists, nor could it exist, but a physical layered glass dome from all the thousands of pictures I've looked at and the different wavelengths from radar to, to infrared uh, and, and to visible, it conforms to the geometry of a glass dome. It's got geometry. In fact, you can see the geometry from Earth with the right kind of telescope, which I've also shown uh, on this show many different times. So let's, let's not get bogged down. Uh, we're literally at the uh, top of the hour. So let's hold it there. As you can tell tonight, we're having a very lively conversation about what is on the moon. And is it physical or is it some kind of Clarkian, you know, any uh, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable magic? Well, someday, and maybe as soon as uh, a few days from now, we might know. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. This is Pink Floyd and the Dark Side of the Moon. I'm in my home. The paper holds their folded faces to the floor. And every day the paper boy brings more. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. 
listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. You raise the blade, you make the change, you rearrange me till I'm changed. You lock the door, throw away the key, there's someone in my head, but it's not me. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, August 19th, except it's now Sunday morning here in the Land of Enchantment, August 20th. August 20th. That's an anniversary of something, probably some NASA mission. I think that was one of the Voyager flybys of uh, either Jupiter or, or Saturn, maybe. Anyway, Andrew has joined us. Andrew, have you been listening? Yes. yes. And yes, yes. I, I presume we've got an hour left, not enough time. Fortunately, we'll do part two next week, depending upon what happens with the Russians and the Indians. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I'm with you. I think there's something up there. I, I mean, I think I've talked to you about this, Richard. What I've noticed is um, the moonlight has changed, at least in my part of the world. I've, I, I don't know if I've talked about this on air um, and I've even talked to Ron about this one night. One night, Ron and I were on the phone together, and I said, "Ron, look up at the moon. It's a full moon tonight." Because you know we're in the same zone, um, <laughs> relatively speaking. And he looked up, and I said, "Don't you notice that the limb is glowing more than ever?" And he goes, "Oh yeah, kind of yeah, you know." And and I, I don't know if it's just something to do with the sun, or like I said to you, Richard, I've just gone way out on the twig of speculation and said something's been activated on the glass. But it's That's just, it. I mean, the moonlight coming into my part of the world is extraordinary. It's, I've never seen something so, I've never seen shadows hitting, like going through trees at night and creating such perfect edges on the ground. And even my, my, my middle son, one night last year, I said, look outside. And he goes, why? And I said, just look. And he looked out the window and it was a full moon night. And he went, Wow. And that was a 15-year-old boy who's not impressed by anything. So I, I, there's, there's, I'm telling you, Richard, there's something extraordinary. The data you've shown on this show and through the years and the stuff that I've gone through, I, you know, you said this earlier to Holger, there's some structure to this stuff still. And I mean, I, I've tried to sort of interpret it. I know Ron is like, Andrew, it's better if you're in, you know, there doing field studies. I know, but sometimes you can glean things from photographs a little bit and, you know, speculate wildly but you uh, there's structure there there's something there so i i mean i and as i said for me there's something odd about the way the moon is glowing these days it's it's unbelievable it's well let me then, let me rapidly go through the rest of my items because they form yeah. the background for uh the next hour of our discussion item number 10 item number nine is the description as limited as it is of the so-called shape experiment on chandrian three uh, a booster in lunar orbit, which is supposed to 
take polarizing images of the Earth, but they're really taking pictures of the glass, I think, and just not telling us because it's too big a damn... Can you imagine when this becomes known? I mean, if, if our military is, you know, scared of Putin or scared of the Chinese or, you know, the, the North Korean idiot, imagine what they must think when they encountered physical evidence of a culture with a technology capable of doming in an entire planet and having it survive millions of years. It's one of those, you wouldn't want to meet those guys in a dark alley on a dark night because military people, by definition, are paranoids. If they weren't, they wouldn't be in the military trying to defend the rest of us from whatever is out there, over there, beyond there, or whatever. That, I believe, was the huge sticking point for NASA decades ago announcing any of this stuff because it was like, how do we tell our people we've encountered the out literally of gods and we haven't a damn thing we can do about it if they turn out to be nasty? You can't tell people that. Bingo. And so, Richard. Oh. Go ahead. Well, I mean, to, to, to cite, um, well, and, the, and, the, and as Ron has often said, the TV show was better. But um, yeah. uh, Stargate, the movie Stargate, original, the original one from, I can't remember here it was, uh, when they did figure out how to open that Stargate in, you know, from that uh, relic that was found in Egypt, what did the military bring through, which they <laughs> hid um, you know, from the scientists? A, nuke, that went with a nuclear exactly. weapon. Exactly. Who was that? Go ahead. No, I was just affirming him. Yes, a nuclear bomb. Okay, so let's go through the rest of these items. Number 10. Not only did the Indians publish the poster about uh, Chandrian 3. Actually, that does flow more easily off the tongue. Thank you, Ron. But they then followed it up with another poster, number 10. Now, number 10, of course, is very, uh, uh, you know, uh, territorial. It's the Indian flag. The Indian flag is standing on the moon, you know, and what's around the limb of the moon? What do you see? Colors. The dome. Now, once would be interesting for an art guy, right? Somewhere in the back room, you know, letting out his huge imagination and giving the moon a more interesting flavor because it's really dead and dull and most of the NASA imagery. But now you've got two data points. So two data points give you a, a trend curve, right? They're saying in their Emily Dickinson fashion, we're going to the moon, we're going to be players among all the big guys, and we know what's waiting for us. And that's why they put the damn polarizing camera on the spacecraft. It's not, this is not rocket science. I mean, really, it's not rocket science. It's just good old optics. All the new missions seem to be using these uh, blue hazy glows, you know, on their artistic representation of, um, of what they're doing, don't they? I, I, you kind of broke up there. What, what were you saying? Sorry, I think my microphone's not good. All the new missions, Richard, they seem to be using these blue hazy glows. Well, it's only um, the Indians. For, it's only uh, the Indians for Chandrayaan 3 that are doing this. Remember? I thought there was some 
nope, 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 never, ever, ever. Now, look carefully at, at uh, item number 11. <laughs> woof, woof. Look at item number 11. <laughs> if you If you <laughs> click on it, it gets much bigger. At least it should. Why isn't it getting bigger? Hmm. Yeah, my computer is very slow tonight. Click on it and look at the detail. Andrew, what do you see? Well, it looks like a lot of geometry. Incredible amounts of geometry. It's on on the actual surface. It shouldn't be there. What it's saying, what the Indians are saying, this is another Indian... You know, puff, puff piece poster. That oh, object, okay. that object in the foreground, is an artist insert above a real right. Indian lunar image from Chandrayaan two. That's Chandrayaan three, supposedly orbiting the moon. Um, I, I'm sorry, that, 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 that is Chandrayaan two orbiting the moon. But they put it above an obvious picture with Mari on the right. And Highlands, incredibly patterned with geometry, of a previously intelligently designed surface somewhere on the moon that they want us to know about without telling us. Well, you know what's really interesting, Richard? I was, um, I, it might have been about six months ago. I was looking, it was after one of the shows, and I was looking at uh, satellite photos of major, really crowded cities on the planet. And one of the ones that you know, Google popped up for me, of course, was um, Delhi, New Delhi. Yeah. And if you put it, if you put it side by side with this, it's, um, you know, I remember mean, you know, Sagan's favorite saying in Cosmos. And remember, I've discussed this on the show that one of the first things he did when we got satellites orbiting the Earth, uh, the the Tyros, the early primitive weather satellites that had these stupid tube cameras, which had Horrible resolution, horrible latitude, you know, bright things were overexposed, dark things run. In other words, terrible technology. But Sagan and one of his grad students went through the Tyros Library at the NASA National Space Science Data Center, uh, where I've been many times at Goddard. And they looked through thousands of pictures, literally eight by ten glossy pictures back in those days. No computers, no Internet, no electronics, no shipping things around physical imagery in photographs looking for evidence that there was intelligent life on earth and sagan even coined kind of like the master rule by saying intelligent life on earth first manifests itself in the geometric regularity of its constructions he was looking for geometry And he found one photograph in the winter of a set of logging roads in northern Canada, you know, where they were logging the primeval pristine forests. And they had to create roads to drag on on huge trucks the the huge logs out. And the roads were created in a cross-hatched geometric fashion. And because of the snowfall, the roads showed up as white lines crisscrossing in a dark, background of the forest that was the only picture he could find in the primitive tyros imagery which showed something so euclidean so geometric that you could say with reasonable certainty somebody's down there doing this 
Well, you look at this picture, number 11, it's geometry cubed, quadrupled. I mean, there's no number to put on it. And the Indians put it out deliberately without telling us what it represents. They're all doing the Dickinson thing. All of us. Anyway, number 12. Uh, Click on number 12. This is a new photograph that was sent to me a few days ago by one of our many, many listeners. Unfortunately, he didn't capture the origin, but I happen to know when it was taken. That bright orange thing on the horizon, that's Mars, like 35 million miles behind the moon uh, during what's called a Mars occultation, where the moon in orbit around the Earth sweeps over the moon and it goes in one side and out the other. What else do you see besides Mars above the lunar limb? Left-hand picture. Anybody? There's some fracturing, isn't there? Like a, a weird line going around the top. Yes, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a glowing, blurry mm. something hugging the mm-hmm. moon in circumferal space separated by a bit of darkness. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's Agreed. the dome seen edgewise. Why is this so hard? Now, the geometry is because the, the original photo was really JPEG, and I've got to go and find the original to publish the real data. But you can also see on the far left on the lunar limb and on the right, Andrew, what do you see? To the left? On the limb? Yeah, on the limb of the moon. Well, it looks like regular three, like, well, more than three. If I'm looking... Yes, really to far, the far left, far like, left, far left, and and far yeah. right, moving in like, toward like Mars. A, it's geometry. Like yeah, it's yeah. buildings. Yes, yeah, and it's they're in cold. and they're in very good condition because what you know what you're looking at, you're looking at the demarcation at the lunar limb between the near side of the moon facing Earth now all the time, and the far side, and because the moon vibrates on its axis, we really don't see like fifty fifty. Because the moon does not orbit the Earth exactly synchronized with the with its rotation around the Earth and with its rotation on its axis, so that you're allowed geometrically to kind of peek over the hill because of the discordant between rotation and orbit, and so you see about 60% of the moon's surface compared to 40% that you never get to see from Earth. That's part of the far side coming around because of the non-equilibrium rotation orbit, and you're seeing structure in the dome on the far side underneath the upper layers. Now, you see all that stuff on the visible face of the moon on the left? Now you look at the image on the right. What do you see? Are they not the same? Yeah. Well... The one on the right is a window pane. I think it's uh, Secret Service, you know, trying to, you know, fire bullets into, you know, the beast, the president's limousine. And so you see shattered ray patterns of projectiles smashing through glass. For hundreds of years, the rays on the moon surrounding the craters, particularly the big ones, are bright, streaky thingies. Look left, look right, look left, look right. Now, you want to get out of this and you want to go to image number 
13. This was a literal audio transcript from the transmissions of the Apollo 16, uh, I'm sorry, Apollo 15 uh, pilot, uh, Al Warden, looking down on the moon from the 60-mile orbit and looking at photographs that he had taken. And he says to uh, one of his friends in the lunar module, it is very strange the way the ejecta from Proclus, that's a big crater there and right above the name Warden, crosses Crisium, which of course is the dark area, you know, over which we have the white print. He says, it is almost like flying above a haze layer and looking down through the haze. It looks like it is suspended over it. What is he describing, gentlemen? I see it. I agree. I, I the see dome. Yes. <laughs> Look, I've got. I've, there, there are there are eight million stories in the Naked City. I've got a million different data points that said this damn thing. No matter how much people don't want to believe it's there, is real. And in the next three four days, we're going to find out whether the Russians have, you know, sharp enough to know it, or the Indians are sharp enough to know it. And we have huge clues from the Indians carrying the one kind of camera which can tell them how to get down safely if they map it before they land and they've done what for the last month they've been in mapping orbits charting the glass beneath them in this model richard had the russians cleaned up their their problem or is it still no is no still it's, still, it's still an issue we don't know they're being very evasive they're not being specific at all you know one good thing about nasa is that everybody talks and we would have you know, five different press conferences about what went wrong, um, which we did back during Apollo, and I was in Houston for one of them. And anyway, no, there's the Russians are very secretive. NASA is open to the limit of their ability to be open. They just leave out huge chunks about the environment of the moon, but they'll rattle on for days about the spacecraft. So we do not know tonight what the problem with the Russians is. We do know that if they don't solve it, there's only going to be one attempt on Wednesday to land an unmanned spacecraft on the moon, and that's the Indians with Chandrian-3. Do you have any speculation at all, any gut feeling at least, or no, about the Russians? Well, as I said, I have an unnamed uh, colleague who is fighting vigorously to not accept the dome model. Uh, they, They will do anything not to have it be real. So they've come up with the fact that all these separate missions you know, since the Russians landed uh, safely uh, 47 years ago with Luna 24, they account for all the failures, the uh, Israelis, uh, the Indians, the Japanese, as sabotage. And, of course, that's a rather desperate reaching because how do you sabotage effectively separate nations with separate security forces with separate missions, separate timetables, separate funding, separate everything. That's a pretty incredibly powerful global conspiracy, would you not say? Yeah. Whereas my model is, they're all so damn dumb, they don't know there's glass there. They hit it on the way down, and then it was like, oh my God. Remember how the Israelis announced right after 
uh, Bereshit crashed. They were going to try Bereshit 2. And then do you remember what happened? No. They suddenly withdrew the idea. They said, never mind, like church lady. Why do they change their mind? Normally, uh, you know, a nation like Israel, trying to become a signal in the noise, trying to be a world power, et cetera, et cetera, you know, if at first you don't succeed, money is no object because we're giving them billions every year. You know, it only costs $100 million. I mean, $100 million these days is kind of like chump change, right? Why did they decide never to try to land on the moon again? Has anybody gone and looked at the Bereshit images taken of the moon in orbit before they tried to land? I have. They're in the archive. I'll post some of them next weekend on Saturday when we do, you know, Chandrayaan 3 Part 2. They spotted the dome. And they still were not able to get down because if you look at it on a broad scale, it looks like one mass. You have to look at it on a very fine scale to see where the holes are and be able to guide yourself through them to get down, particularly if you're trying to land at the south or north pole where the glass is much thicker, much. It's very interesting, Richard, that there was an article that Ron and you were sharing. I think I've said this before a million times. We all have our back channels where we're chatting, and there was an article that you were you and you and Ron were talking about. And towards the, I think it was a space.com article, and towards the bottom, one of the last paragraphs, it said something about the southern hemisphere is exotic, and I'm like, what? Like it, that was the word used, and I and I've got, I it, it, I don't know if you remember, but it was just a very curious word to use. I mean, maybe because we, well, I don't know. It was just a really, it, it was plunked in there, you know, exotic. And you know, another thing, Richard, um, the Z, um, the uh, Luna mission, the the, the the Russian mission, Luna twenty five, Luna twenty five. The first picture they took, they showed it. I think you have it on your links. Is um, Zeman crater on the South Pole and What's really curious is right to the right of that is DeForest Crater that we've been fussing over, which actually Ruggiero has some great you know imagery from that. I, it's 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 just curious all these things that are lining up. You know they're 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 definitely looking. I mean I know they they say they're going to the South Pole to find polar or to find water, right? And you know that will help with everything, either establishing bases or or, or jetting off to Mars or, or whatever you know sure. whatever. You <clears throat> Having volatiles being able to live off the land. And by the way, the LaCrosse mission, the NASA mission that smashed into the moon back in 2009, about right. the same time that the Indians were sending Chandrayaan-1, they found all kinds of incredible volatiles than the ices after the impact, including, and this is really cool, they found lots and lots of water. They found another material, an element, as abundant as water that no one could possibly model should be anywhere near the moon. Remember what it was? No. Liquid mercury. Liquid oh. mercury. Now, in the ancient Vedas, describing the flying Bamanas, read Indian UFOs, what yeah. was the operative technology based on for these flying craft? from ancient, ancient, ancient Indian 
Sanskrit history? Mercury. Mercury. Yeah. Yes. Come on, yeah. folks. Program. It sure would make the South Pole very exotic, wouldn't it? Well, there's another thing. Remember the big thing that I've been talking about for decades? We have to find the libraries. Where, of all places on the moon, would you be most likely to find a huge centralized archive of ancient lunar, Earth, and solar system history if the moon, as Ron said, and I agree, was brought here uh, many, many, many hundreds of millions of years ago? And I can give you a date, specifically on a Thursday. (laughs) What would you think if there are people... There has to be a library system. Otherwise, knowledge cannot be passed on. If you're going to build a library, where would you put it? Where the people are. And where do you put the people? Where the resources are. At the poles on the moon, where we now know from our measurements and the little Indian MIP spacecraft, there is abundant materials which literally are the stuff we are breathing right now these long pauses are weird you're never supposed to have <laughs> long pauses well, in radio it means well, folks, myself, people, have, yeah. it, it means people are thinking or I'm so far off it that they don't know how to tell well, me well well Richard just sorry Ron no, I want to finish this last thought yeah, go. there is a um, from a few years ago a Spanish. Well, he's an artist, um, fellow named George. What was his name? George Marie Rubio. Uh, we we talked about this a few years ago. He had proposed putting a on the moon, and it's in the shape of a dome, beautiful, and with stairways leading up to it. Oh yeah, I've got the picture. It's got astronauts going up and down the stairs like angels going up yeah. down stairways in Ex- heaven. And it's supposed yeah. to be a lunar archive. By the way, do you remember all the people who proposed lunar archives recently, in, including our friend uh, Nova Spivak, right? who actually was able to get his archive in immortal nickel-plated something or other on Bereshit? And on one of the shows a year or two ago, he announced to me and to everybody else that among the things in the lunar library the Israelis crashed on the moon – is my book, The Monuments of Mars. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so I'm on the moon tonight. We're doomed. Okay. Say again? <laughs> we're doomed. We're doomed. Yes, of course we're doomed. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, I had a, you we, asked where the library is, Richard. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you where I say it would be. I know that's not in keeping with anything that's going on. Uh, the equator of Kurt. Well, that's on the equator. It's got got an equilateral triangle in the center. If you were living in Ukert, and there's all kinds of structures around it, the Earth would be straight overhead, wobbling back and forth because of the lunar libration. You'd see it spinning and turning in the clouds, and it would be a gorgeous view if you had skylights in your your, uh, lunar domes or housing or whatever. That's That's a very good place, Ron. That would be... My second bet, but my first bet would be the lunar south pole. Which is going to become a mining zone and be full of uh, big machines. Do you know know how much land area there is there? Come on. 
You sound like some rabid eco freak. <laughs> really? Yes. Yes, I am. Uh, I am. I'm putting together a GoFundMe page for the bureaucrat in, in uh, Hawaii that wouldn't let them use water to put out the fires because it was for his his eco plants. Okay, hold yeah, it there. No. Hold it there. We're at the, at the bottom yeah. of the hour. <laughs> Don't leave us. My guest this morning, too numerous to mention, just go to the other side of midnight and check the uh, bios there. We're going to talk about this amazing breakthrough in confirming all this, that literally if this show had been done two weeks ago, I would not have known about. So there is another presence, executive producing, and we'll get to that in the last half hour when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and you don't want to miss this because you're going to be part of it. Don't go away. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. <clears throat> Last half hour to go here on Saturday night, Sunday morning in the land of enchantment with a hurricane bearing down with uh, scattered showers and the winds have been picking up. And uh, I'm really praying we can do tomorrow night because tomorrow night's very important as a prelude for next weekend. And I know if you look at the uh, radio with pictures, we have a whole bunch of, of uh, images and items from everyone on the panel. And obviously, we're not going to get to them tonight because we're talking about what the Indians are doing to confirm what's on the moon. But there's really amazing stuff. And the good news is what we don't get to tonight, we will get to next 
Saturday night in part two. And by then, we may actually have the first images from the lunar south pole looking up into space, looking out across the horizon at the Earth, which will be hovering just above the horizon from the spacecraft landed point of view, and around it should be the glistening, glittering vestiges of the ancient lunar glass dome. Pray. Okay. Who wants to talk? That sounds like a robot. <laughs> uh, Richard, I'll jump in quickly. Okay. Um, have you uh, come across the book, um, An Atlas of the, uh, of, the moon, of the Moon? Oh, there's many atlases. Which one are you thinking of? Well, I, I, I was intrigued by uh, this book I had years ago, and it unfortunately got stolen when my parents' uh, garage got broken into oh, no. before they were moving house. So it was a it's a massive like encyclopedia of images images of the moon, probably before the one from the Observatory. What's that? Wrong. You mean it was uh, the one that was pictures from the Lick? Yeah, back amazing. in the back in the early 20th century, the Lick Observatory with their 36-inch Crosley reflector, took a set of comprehensive images of the moon um, that, in fact, are probably the best Earth-based imagery database that existed prior to the space age, and it's become a classic. So it, it might have been that one. By the way, you know there, uh, there are used copies you can find on Amazon. You could replenish yeah, your, 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 your library. Absolutely. And, and it, this booklet was, um, you know, I used to stare at it for hours when I was really young. I think it was before that time, um, beautiful, beautiful put together, like a Encyclopedia Britannica, just how well that was done. Mm-hmm. And it had all these original moonshots. And it comes back to your image number, um, let's have a look. image number 12 you were just discussing. Okay. Um, when <clears throat> I look at the... the, the battering of this, uh, you know, proposed for the glass. Um, I haven't seen, I don't recall seeing um, shapes like that, imagery like that on, on other surfaces where you've had craters um, hitting um, other planetary bodies. Uh, so I think that composition is really good. But I'm trying to lead into, um, my, for your evidence, Richard, my image number, so I'm just scrolling through, number 17. Okay. All right. Um, oh, you only have experience. 17 images. Gosh. <laughs> I, I've got, I've, actually, I want Keith to add one or two more. But uh, um, it, 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 it all kind of ties in. So my last one, you have to watch this little video. My so computer is lagging terribly, so I'm, okay. I'm way behind. Start at 14 and just let your eyes scroll down to image 17. Okay. There's a video which um, I've asked Keith to put up. And it's kind of relevant to that uh, gunshot look on that, that uh, the mirror you put up. So what does your, your mathematical mind tell you when you see image? All right. I, 14, need, I need to call it back it. up here because my, uh, my uh, okay. computer is acting really slow. It did last week, too. So I'm going to your number 17. 
at start of 14. I start at 14. It's, it's okay. A, Looking at 14. Hmm. Which scrolling, is scrolling, scrolling. Okay, I see nested geometry. Mm. And it's like a hexagon. And yeah, absolutely. Another shape and another shape. Yep. Okay. And then we end up going to uh, image 17. What do you see? Okay, that's that's weird. That's mm. very weird. Hmm. What, so what is so it? this well, this looks like um, some kind of lens flare in front of a picture done by an artist uh, for a title of something with little crosshairs, the moon in the background. Um, all right, what? And, and then of course you seem to have a reflection of the Earth, which I think that bluish, you know, uh, gibbous object is in what looks like a lens. Mm-hmm. What, what do you mean by crosshairs? Those little, those little uh, cross hatches, like like uh, you know plus signs. Oh, okay, okay. Left and um, right of what looks like a lens, uh, you know, bracketing the explorer. Yeah, what what, I, what all this is, is it's a 4K video that's about two minutes thirty seconds long, okay. of uh, one side of the moon, and then at the end of it, there's this bizarre. Uh, it's like a under two second flashes of, of sort of uh, geometry that comes out at you. And within that, I believe there might be some kind of coding. Someone's trying to get a message across. Um, and at the end, as they're rotating through the moon, you've got this, this blue imagery, mm-hmm. like a shadowing. And it reminds me of your blue imagery of when you did those, those 3D graphings um, of, the, of the Apollo uh, landing images of the moon. Right. When you're when you're trying to highlight the the, the structures, um, so I just wanted your mind to look at those on a subconscious level and interpret what you're seeing. And it comes back to the book that I've just described. And I'm being a bit dyslexic and put everything together here, but, but that gunshot imagery um, of the the left and right side of your image twelve, and then the potential for the, uh, the domes you're well, talking about with the refraction. You know, one of, one of, you know one of the really outstanding mysteries of the moon, which has never been satisfactorily explained even across, you know, pre-decades of, you know, 100 plus years of good telescopes, quarter million miles, that kind of thing. There are obvious blatant hexagonal craters oh, on yeah. the moon. Absolutely. There are hexagonal craters on Mars. There are hexagonal craters on every surface we have looked at with sufficient resolution have at a variety of scales hexagonal craters. And tomorrow night, as part of, if I'm praying we have a show tomorrow night because it's so important, as part of our discussion of Oppenheimer Part 2 and Mm -hmm. HD physics and nuclear weapons and things that go bump in the night, I'm going to show you another hexagonal energy structure which might explain hexagonal cratering across the solar system. Right, right. Yeah, you need to watch this video because it's it's bizarre. Okay. Um, well, obviously I can't watch it now because I'm no, kind of okay. okay. All right. Okay, we got a few minutes left, uh, like 20 minutes, give or take. Um, let me let me before we get lost in the weeds tell you about the breakthrough. 
the way we're going to solve this problem, the way that we're going to ultimately know if there is a dome multi-layered encompassing the entire moon is the technology depicted in my item number 14. A French company called Vionis, which manufactures really sophisticated high-tech telescopes for the digital age, and they're out of reach of most people, thousands of dollars. They, are, they have raised a crowdsourced funding now of over $2 million to put into production and offer to the general public by December of this year a super sophisticated digital telescope in which you can put a smartphone, be it modern, brand new, Android or whatever, or one that's as much as five years old, and you put it in the cradle. That's what the image is, and, and the image on the, on the screen on the phone is showing the sun. This telescope comes with a solar filter and a big enough objective lens. That's the big lens in the front that collects the light and then channels it down to the camera pixels and all that, that will allow you literally, if you click on that link, uh, it will take you to an image about halfway down the page showing the size of the moon photographed by uh, a smartphone through this gadget, which is called Hestia. I haven't had time to look up the, um, you know, Greek goddess Hestia. Someone can do that, maybe Andrew or Roger or whatever. Uh, but obviously it's all part of the same mystique here because what they're doing is they're trying to create and roll out a commercial product for the total solar eclipse that's going to occur in April of 2024 crossing almost the entire country like the other one did back in 2017. Uh, 2020, yeah, 2017. If they get enough of these in the hands of enough people, and I'm going to go after the, uh, the company people, the president or whatever, and hopefully have him on the show, this is going to be the democratic, and I mean that with a small d, citizen-based general population confirmation with just a smartphone and this smart telescope, which costs with a few bells and whistles less than 300 bucks and will allow an average person who knows nothing about optics, nothing about astronomy, nothing about our work, you know, nothing about anything above the atmosphere will allow the average person, man or woman, to put their smartphone in this gadget point it at the moon and take pictures of the glass domes covering the near side of the moon. Or when there's no eclipse, between now and next spring, every time there is a thin crescent new moon and most of the moon is illuminated by earth shine, reflected sunlight off the oceans and the atmosphere and the continents of Earth, what most people don't know, and Ruggiero posted the, uh, uh, yeah, the Greek goddess of the hearth and home, is somebody being really, really, really Emily Dickinson clever knowledge that's now basically all they have to do is put the stuff together, they have the money, that basically is going to look at our ancient hearth and 
home. Anyway, if you don't wait for the eclipse over the next several months between now and next April, every month there comes a period where there's a new moon glimmering in the east, in the west rather, as as it's uh, moving away from the sun, or glimmering in the east, which means you've got two opportunities per month, uh, sunrise and sunset, where there's a thin crescent, but most of the moon is illuminated by the earth light, and the earth light is, wait for it, naturally polarized. It becomes an intense astronomical source of polarized illumination for all the glass remaining on the near side of the moon. And you can see this best during a total solar eclipse if you take a long enough set of exposures to where you see the Earth light reflected from that black disk which normal eclipse pictures show. There's actually, you know, detail in that black disk which is the Earth illuminated as a full moon by the full Earth in the skies over the moon. And this telescope technology in item 14, if we spread it wide enough, if we advertise it wide enough, and we have no connection to the company, I'd love to have one, but uh, because of principle, I don't think we can, because then people would accuse us of simply advertising this to make a buck. That's not why this is crucial, why this is overwhelmingly important. With this technology, less than 300 bucks. Hell, what do you spend every year that's worth around 300 bucks that you could do without to do with something which will put your name down immortal in history as the first civilian to verify the domes on the moon? And all the telescope needs is a polarizing filter to put in front of the telescope lens, which in that picture is a little black thing in the upper left-hand corner of the white rectangle. And it's five times bigger than the best lens in the best smartphone. And of course, resolution is dependent linearly on size. So it will give you pictures that are five times better picture you could take of the moon with your smartphone just by itself. And if you look at the example they have in that story, it's more than adequate to see, particularly if you digitally enlarge and enhance, because that's a raw image and the scale is correct. Thousands of people all over the world during the new moon and the last fading crescent before the new moon will be able to verify in every country on the planet, country, city, backyard, patio, anywhere on their imagery put on the web that they in fact have photographed the dome and the way they're going to see it is by taking pictures through this telescope with a polarizing lens rotated 90 degrees between one set of images and the other and the domes will show up and the background image of the moon will be suppressed and so they will stand out like the proverbial sore thumb like they do in the total eclipse imagery that we've been analyzing, it isn't going to be a government, it isn't going to be a space agency, it isn't going to be the deep state that does any of this. It's absolute, ordinary, gangbuster citizens, citizen scientists on a scale that Copernicus could have only dreamed about 
verifying the most important feature of the moon, which opens up the entire panoply of possibilities that we indeed do live in a designer solar system, and the moon is right next door, accessible to our technology and to the Artemis human missions in another couple of years, and if not them, then Musk himself and his starship taking eight tourists, you know, artists into close lunar orbit, which by the time they get there, we'll make sure they are outfitted with polarizing smartphone cameras. We are on a path to victory and confirmation of the most astonishing breakthrough in human history. And all we have to do, pedal to the metal, get one of these gadgets, begin to take as of December, great Christmas present, by the way, um, test images so you're ready for the eclipse. Or if you can't wait, you photograph the what they call the new moon in the arms of the old moon, which is the Earth-lit polarized vision of Earth-light reflected from the moon. This is a game changer, a game changer. And if this show had not been delayed a couple of weeks, I wouldn't have known about it because they just advertised at the end of their, uh, I forget how many you know months that they had this uh, uh, crowdsourcing or GoFundMe uh, program underway and and have made possible ordinary average confirmation from countless independent amateur astronomers of a stunning history changing breakthrough right over our heads ron goes hmm yeah i just uh, i uh, i've uncovered the deepest secret of hestia which Not is? really. I just, wanted to, I just wanted to say that. Oh, okay. Uh, the, uh, she is, uh, yeah, she, equivalent uh, in the Roman pantheon would be Vesta, who uh, was usually re- displayed symbolically as much as having pictures of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hestia was a virgin goddess and, yes, goddess of the hearth. But what that means is that she was specifically docent or in charge anyway of all ritual sacrifices. She was the first one invoked at any time there was a ritual sacrifice. Somehow, well, all gods were sacrificed. Tied into this camera. You know, when, 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 when you... I've got to talk to the guy who created the company and find out where he decided on that name. Because to me, the name is so yes. symbolic. You know, a technology to literally photograph some of us. Maybe not all of us, but some of our ancient home. In other words, why are the Chinese so wrapped up in the moon? Why do they keep calling their moon mission Chang, the goddess of the moon? Why did Chang have a uh, pet rabbit? Rabbits, by the way, are you know uh, genetically, intimately closely related to human beings. Uh, Georgia Lambert actually found that out and told me one night many, many weeks ago. Uh, and then, you know, this, this, this pet rabbit is doing what in the company of Chang on the moon? He's working with mortar and pestle on the secret of immortality. 
Are we looking at the human story compressed in a bizarre fashion in ancient Greek legend now made visible in a tool which can be democratized all over the planet to verify a stunning human history that nobody realized is part of our soul and part of our ancient, ancient identity. Richard, you've nailed it. The, you know, if we look at the hero's journey, humanity is in the returning home phase. And we see analogs of that all over the planet with, um, you know, in Africa, everybody's reclaiming their, their history, their culture, their language, even China, you know, turning back to Confucianism. Um, Russia, you know, Ron's right to an extent, looking, you know, they're returning to their uh, Russian Orthodox and they want to go back to their original land. Th- this is happening all over the planet, which is driving the globalists crazy. <laughs> but, on, on, but, but, but Richard, in a deeper sense, you're right. Those are just our recent regional understandings, our recent uh, person, you know, like, 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 like our, our, our race race-centric stuff. And how would they be preserved in ancient mythologies and legends that were oral traditions religiously mandated to be, you know, brought down from ancient generations to the current, not changing uh, in the Israeli, you know, Hebraic uh, admonition, a jot and a tittle of the text. It's history. Now, who who in India is a really, 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 really big fan of ancient, ancient Indian history. Modi. Prime Minister Modi, who was present in, literally in the control center with all his cohorts and hangers-on and wives and cousins and friends and whatever in their saris. And it was a brilliant you know, tour de force watching the launch of a mission which if they do it, if they have the guts and courage and mixing our cultures, Natalie Cojones, India could take the supreme lead of planet Earth into the 21st century. The real 21st century, not this nonsense we've been living with the last, you know, 20 some years. Hmm. I can't wait for them to. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I stepped on you. Go ahead. You mean leader in aeronautical and space science? No, like leader in, in, human, in human history, unveiling <laughs> our real history, which is in the Vedas. It's in the um, uh, Bhagavad Gita, which I'm going to talk about at length tonight. Do you think it was just an accident that Oppenheimer, Robert Oppenheimer, the one physicist leading the Americans to the creation of the most incredibly horrible weapon ever imagined up to that time that he had this incredible Indian Vedic background and that he uttered that famous phrase after the Trinity bomb went off is this merely happenstance coincidence or was this part of a much bigger plan which we're going to talk about hopefully in great detail tomorrow night Richard, lots of people had had noticed the high-tech sci-fi aspect to ancient uh, Indian Yeah, but they lore. weren't put in charge of developing a damn atomic bomb. Well, it didn't prevent it didn't prevent from getting that job. Yes, it did. 
It could only have been Oppenheimer. There's nobody else oh, in the oh. in the nuclear physics arena that had any anywhere anything close to that his obsession. And he I was think, obsessed. He and I think he scholar, was chosen yes. specifically because remember the in crowd has known everything I've said tonight for a very long time. That's the rest right. of us are kept in the dark, but the deep state, the in crowd, the old masters, the whatever you know, supra governmental institution you want to womp up. They know what's been going on, and there's been a timetable, I believe, to release this, and now is the time. That may all be true. Yes. Anybody else? Oh, and we've got literally one minute, so I guess we don't have time for reactions. So everybody will recycle the count. We'll all show up here next um, Saturday night. Which will be anybody got a calendar? I don't have one in front of me. The twenty seventh, right? Or no, twenty sixth, because Saturday would be twenty sixth, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Wrong? Yes, yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, you well, know, this is high. This is high level math. You know, adding seven <laughs> to nineteen. I just yeah, except it's already Sunday, so it's Saturday night. So I have to subtract one then. See. So. Oh, see, but if you mention that, then that means that everybody will mistakenly tune into the wrong night. It's Saturday night when we start. Remember Chevy Saturday Chase? Night. It's Saturday night. Hey, we're literally down to seconds. I want to thank all my guests tonight, all the very interesting crisscrossing ideas and projections and whatever to be continued. In fact, tomorrow night, we're going to put out some threads that show how Oppenheimer and all of this and Chandrian 3 could in fact have been deliberately connected. So until then, tomorrow night, pray Hillary doesn't get here. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Keep looking up, everyone. It's about to get really exciting.